Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 301, Hesla. If you freck with the universe, it fricks back. Pre-diaspora astrophysicist. I don't have to explain shit. Universe John, meme of the second millennia post-diaspora. If you mess with time, the universe brings in all the schlongs. Schlongs until the end of time. Temporal researcher of an unknown era. God plays dice, then loaded. Albert Einstein, pre-diaspora physicist. If you make the universe angry, it'll crush you like a bug. The problem is, the universe is always annoyed. Unknown. Terran descent humanity. There are always military theorists who will espouse their pet theories to anyone who will listen. All those who said that a tank spelled the end of infantry, to those who claimed drones spelled the end of tanks, to those who stated that a nanoforge ended the need for logistic lines at all. Everyone all has their pet theories. And of course, they usually espouse them from the comfort of their lavish homes or from the far back from the front lines where any soldier will tell you in one simple fact. Kill the enemy, break his crap, and convince his population to end the fight. Hesla was a small planet, only 80% of the size of Earth. Originally populated by a small people only a meter and a half high compared to the Terran, Andrianidad, and Rigelian 2 to 3 meters. They were covered in soft fur. They had little whiskers. They had long, sensitive ears. And their legs had hock joints. The first few Terrans who met them said that they looked like someone taught a bunny to walk upright. They were a peaceful people. When they had discovered the radio, they had rapidly progressed to the information age and had been edging to the atomic age. The Lanaclan had arrived only 200 years after the people of Hesla had discovered the radio. The people of Hesla had found out that their planet was claimed by a megacorp over a million years before the Heslan people had discovered fire. To their credit, they tried to fight. It took the Lanaclan nearly 20 years to put down the last of the rebellion. 400 years of debt peonage had followed, crushing poverty. Their resources exploited, their cities rebuilt for the Lanaclan comforts and aesthetics. Their planet no longer alone. Then had come the precursor autonomous war machines. They'd come into system, most of them damaged, fleeing a greater threat. They had destroyed the Lanaclan military forces and seized the extraction and refining facilities. They had landed mechanical horrors to destroy those that lived on the modest planet. As the first machine landed, the entire population of Hestler had heard its roar. Heavy metal incoming! 
the foe and the autonomous war machines were fleeing was arriving. The Hessler ran and hide and frozen, a brave response to the roar of a predator. Then the predators had arrived. Heavy metal is here! The autonomous war machines had screamed as a foe that had been harrying him. There is only enough for one. The Heslin people had huddled down, scurrying to the basement, storm shelters, underground parking garages, wherever they could take shelter, surrounded by their own kind. Then the predator screamed back, And I alone! In less than a week, it was over. The AWMs that did not flee, pursued by the predators, were destroyed. The Lanaclan returned and left their own shelters, immediately demanding that the new people, the predators, leave the planet. That was a Neo-Sapien Council's property, and the property of the corporations. The predators had said one simple line. Make me. The Lanaclan had pled, promising dire retribution, telling the Hessler people that the predators would destroy them. Two years had passed. The damage was repaired. The Hesselin people consulted about the way they wished, and the Terrans had built several military bases and helped the Hesselin people build orbital structures. Then the newest enemy had arrived. Without warning, but still with a scream that told the Hesselin people where they stood, You belong to us! The predators, those confusing, chaotic, Primates, the Terran descent humans and their allies had raised their voices as one to the newcomers. Eat a dick. The fighting had been fierce. Atomic weapons had been used. Cities reduced to rubble. Bombs burnt to the ground. The newcomers had swarmed Hessler, a seemingly endless stream of enemies that had pushed the Hesslin people to the brink. The Terrans and their allies had pushed back. Step by bloody step, they pushed the newcomers, the Slorpies, back, even as they destroyed them. Four months of bitter fighting on the ground, and uh, somehow, seventy-five years in orbit, the Terrans had thrown themselves at the enemy guns, had smashed their machines, had raised their voices in defiance. Eat a dick! In the afternoon of the first month of the year, on the nineteenth day, at approximately 1750 hours out of 28 local time. The last of the newcomers was finished off by a single shot from a pistol's accidental discharge. The war was over. Not that the fighting was over. That raged on. The newcomers' autonomous war machines kept fighting, even without supervision, attempting to open up a portal to bring in reinforcements to harvest the living brains of the people of the Hestler in order to generate enough psychic energy to open a gate to allow more of the newcomer race, the Slorpies, to enter the battle and change the course of history. The only problem was, for the first time in a hundred million years, the Slorpies were facing a race that did not crumble before psychic attacks. They replied to the cold logic of their psychic powers with feral screams and red-hot rage. In orbit, the fighting came to a slow stop. 
Even with the loss of the Black Fleet, the remaining Terran vessels managed to smash the enemy from the skies. On the ground, even with the loss of the enraged ones, the ground forces managed to rally, managed to deny the sloppy machine's landing zones, scattering their forces into pockets and smidgens, to draw and corner them into something more than smashed junk. Not without a price. There was valor and sacrifice. Too much to count. The Terrans had to give his life to stop the slobby machines from getting into the shelter to the Tarkin who stood to fight at the gates of the hospital place, to the black mantid fire team that had boarded the slobby command and control AWM to destroy the linked brains at a cost of their own lives. There was tragedy too. Too much to count. There always is in war. But there was always hope, perhaps small and flickering, but still hope. Ilu watched as the door opened after a 232 knock. He had covered the shotgun with a cloth, making sure that it was pushed back to where Nee couldn't reach it when the knock had come. Still, it was close enough for him to grab if he needed it. His sister, Danbury, came inside, quickly turning to close the door behind her and block out the snow and wind. She was wearing heavy boots, thick coveralls, and a grab skiing mask to protect her face from the cold weather outside. She wore a thick leather belt with a heavy Terran pistol in her holster. In one hand, she held winter tubers. In the other hand, she had four fish on a lead. She moved into the kitchen, setting the fish in the sink and the tubers on the counter, then took off her thick gloves and stripped off her mask. Elu saw the scar on his sister's head and winced. It had been a month since that thing had come in and attacked him. It had somehow split his sister's skin open from right between her eyes, up over her head between her ears, and halfway down the back of her head. The scar was an angry, upraised purple thing, and a reminder of why they stayed in their little cabin. Gunker roots and fish for dinner tonight, Danbury said, taking the pistol out of the holster. Block, she ordered. The telltales and the pistol switched from green to red. Can we have the roots fried? True, Elu's sister asked hopefully. I like them best when they're fried. I know. That's up to you. It's your turn to cook dinner, Danbury said, taking off her bow. She moved back to the doorway. It's snowing again. It's going to be a long winter. The roar of jets went by overhead and off in the distance. Fried roots and baked fish, Drew said, standing up from the couch. Mr. Mew Mew looked up from his little nest and made a plaintive complaining sound. Everyone's okay, Mr. Mew Mew, Danbury said, hanging up the mask, her gloves, and starting to strip off her coveralls. Mr. Mew Mew laid back down in his nest, flashing a smiley face on the display on his forehead. Danbury went into the bedroom and changed out of her heavy, outside clothing, putting on a dress and changing her shoes. She came back out and put her boots next to the door, the heavy leather belt acting as a belt or sash to her dress. The pistol went back into the holster. How's knee? Danbury asked. Sleeping, True said, sharpening the knife and trying to decide whether she wanted to slice up the tubers first or clean and bone the fish. She's cranky, Elu said, helpfully, moving over and sitting down on the couch. He reached over and petted Mr. Mew Mew, 
who began to rumble happily. I know, growing does that to you, Avery said. She opened the cold box and pulled out a fizzy brew, cracking it open and taking a long drink before sitting down. Legs almost completely covered with ice. Yilu felt a little despair. He missed his friends, missed school, missed his parents. Mr. Mew Mew opened his eye. The other one always stayed closed and rubbed his head against Yilu's hand to ease the young Hessler's stress. More jets roared overhead. Where will we live when that stops? Yilu asked quietly. His sister, Danbury, didn't like to talk about the future, just saying that none of it mattered till those noises stopped. Danbury stared at the lip of the fizzy brew for a long moment. I don't know, she sighed. Took another long drink. Part of me thinks I'll just stay right here, in this little cabin, for the rest of my life, she said softly. People in charge will probably want us to leave, go to a camp or a foster home. I want to stay here with you, True said, slicing open the penny of the first fish. I know, Dabry said. She gave another deep sigh and took a long pull at the bottle. I want you to, too. Hiru moved over and opened the curtain a tiny bit. Staring outside, he could see the markings from the snowshoes his sister had worn on the snow, but the tracks were starting to disappear as more snow came down to add to more waist-high snow. At least it was white and not grey or black. Remember when we used to play in the snow? Viru said quietly. We'd make snowmen and throw snowballs, True said, smiling. We'd go to Aunt Fen's house and have a snowball fight with Ultrek and Olaf and... Uh, Drew's smile vanished as she smiled. I miss Aunt Fen. I know, Dabry said. I do too. I wish we could go back to how it was before those gross things came, True said softly, staring at the fish as she sliced away the flesh. I know, but we can't. Baby's wish, Dabry said. She got up, drinking down the last of the fizzy brew. She dropped the empty into the garbage and grabbed another, then sat back down. Baby's wish, we're not babies anymore. Mr. Mew Mew jumped down off the couch, staggering slightly, then limped over to Danbury, putting its front paws on a leg and meowing. Danbury lifted him up and set him on a lap, petting him with long strokes. Mr. Mew Mew didn't walk or jump so well since the sloppy had come in the house. She could still remember it, the horror of not being able to move. Her brother and sister crying out in pain and confusion. The way the sloppy had lifted her up, had started to peel her head open, had touched her brain somehow with a long, disgusting tongue. Danbury closed her eyes tightly and shuddered, then took a long drink off of a fizzy brew. At least her headaches had slowly eased up. She sat in the chair, feeling tired, closing her eyes. She sipped at the fizzy brew without opening her eye, even when she heard True start to fry the fish in tubers. She wasn't as tired as she had been, but she still got tired easily, and the effort to catch fish wasn't as easy as it had been. Her eyes opened when she heard it, the sound of an aircraft outside. It wasn't flying, but instead was getting louder, changing sounds. Mr. Mew Mew looked up as Danbury stood up, setting Mr. Mew Mew on the ground as she looked at her siblings. In the basement now, Danbury said. 
while her little brother and sister grabbed their emergency bags and hurried into the basement. Danbury put a lid on the pan of the frying fish and sliced tuber rounds and moved them off the heat. The raw pitch changed, getting softer, but not because it was moving away. Knee bitter when Danbury grabbed her, but Danbury ignored the pain, cradling the toddler as she hurried to the kitchen. Danbury picked up the shotgun and hustled after her brother and sister, closing the basement hatch behind her. She attacked the carpet to it so it wouldn't hide the basement axes, so now all she could do was hope. Mr. Mew Mew was held tightly by True as I sat quietly in the basement. Danbury aimed the shotgun at the opening, moving her finger to take the shotgun from the safety mode to getting mode. The button went from red to green, colored plastic instead of lights. The door opened upstairs and Danbury heard Iru suck in her breath. Shh, Danbury said. There was footsteps upstairs, strange sounding footsteps. Someone's in the cabin, True whined. I know, shh. There was a noise of a chair scraping wood. Danbury moved her finger from beside the trigger to the trigger, putting the light pressure on it, putting it tighter into her shoulder. There's a lot of them, True said helpfully. I know, shh, Danbury said. She could hear that both bedrooms were being searched, as well as the front room at the kitchen. She heard the back door open, the little chime she'd rigged up ringing on the door and in the basement. The footsteps stopped. Complete silence. I'm scared, Edu said, his voice tight. I know, Dabry said. She licked her dry lips and wished that she could take a drink of a fizzy brew. The hatch started to lift, hit the chain lock, and stopped. Danbury's scar ate. A black segmented and insect-looking hand reached in, grabbed the chain, and yanked. The chain popped free. Danbury pulled the trigger. The shotgun roared, blowing part off the hatch. You won't hurt them! Danbury screamed, ignoring the pain in her shoulder as a neck as she pumped action on the shotgun and stood up. She fired again into the ceiling, blowing a hole as big as a fist into the wooden floor. She cocked it again and moved up to the base of the stairs. Only Jesus, brickball crap in Christ, someone yelled when she blew a hole in the floor on the other side of the hatch. For Frick's sakes, stop shooting, another voice shouted. Frick, Danbury paused. Terran army, hold your fire, another voice said, much more calm. Terrans, Danbury asked still looking down the barrel at the top of the stairs. First Cavalry Division, one of our search and rescue flights saw the smoke from your cabin, the voice said. How many of you are there? Stop biting me, True told me. Four of us and Mr. Mew Mew, Dabry said. I'm coming up. Anything funny and I'll blow you in half. I bet you will, kid, the voice said. Dabry slowly walked up the stairs, her finger on the trigger. Six more shells, counting the one in the chamber. Extras are in the kitchen drawer and a belt hanging next to the back door. At the top, she looked around. Six large figures in a black armor were in the room, three of them aiming heavy black rifles at her. New Terrans! One of them tapped the side of his helmet and his black faceplate turned clear. Danbury sagged slightly, lowering her shotgun. You are... So you're the masked killer of Sparkling Lake, the man said. Danbury nodded as she slowly walked over to the table, setting the shotgun down. She sat down and picked up a fizzy brew and took a drink. Yeah, 
she said. The exhaustion filled her again, and she took another drink. The Terrans looked at each other, and the one that she could see the face of, that she assumed was a male, looked at her. We're here to save you. She took another drink. I know, she said. Getting up, she moved to the pan back to the heat. The human shuffled for a second. Do you need assistance? Danbury took another drink as she slowly turned and looked at them. Looked at the shotgun, then at the Terrans again. A flight of jets went overhead. Danbury jerked a thumb at the now receding jets. As long as I hear that, we're staying here. The human nodded slowly. Is there anything need? A doctor to look at your scar? Danbury shook her head, backing up to lean against the counter. Mr. Mew Mew fixed it up. Food? Water? Anything? Terran asked. Danbury shook her head. No. Are your parents still alive? The Terran asked. Danbury shook her head. No. They got schlomped. Any relatives alive? He asked. She shook her head again. Probably not. I was supposed to take any unaccompanied children to the refugee center, the Terran carefully said. Danbury wondered why his eyes seemed to glow a cold amber. You will try, Danbury said. She could hear a faint roar of approaching aircraft again. I will not allow anyone to take away my siblings until... The jets rolled overhead and receded. Until I do not hear that any longer. There was a silence for a moment before the human nodded. We'll drop you a survival pack. The humans turned and started to leave. The one with the transparent visor waited until they were gone. The Terran who that pistol belonged to, he asked. Slorpy's got him, sucked out his brain. He killed the Slorpy from the inside. He gave me the pistol, told me to save the last four shots for my sibling and myself. The Terran nodded. After a moment, two Terrans came in carrying backpacks. They dropped them on the floor and left. They hadn't turned the visors clear. Good luck, kid, the Terran said. His visor going opaque. You might be here a long time. Danbury took the long drink off a of fizzy brew as the Terrans left, closing the door behind them. I know, she said to the empty cabin. End of chapter. Chapter 302. The tanks were heavy Terran machines, weighing between 750 tons and 1,000 tons, called kiloton tanks. They were engines of mass destruction. 50 feet long, 20 feet wide, 12 feet high, massive tracks and thick armor that were rolling engines of destruction built sturdily enough to take 12.5 megaton hits to the front glaciers and keep on coming. Single barrel main gun with multiple secondary weapons, including mortars, vehicle launch missile systems, drone launchers, and smoke ejectors. Even the Lanaklan commanders admitted that the Terran tank, even without support, was a battle changer. Crewed by six humans and five mantid, the tank crews were highly trained for their positions as tank commanders, gunner, loaded, camo electronic warfare, machine gunner, who covered everything from tactical urban survival kit machine guns to the VLS artillery systems, and assistant loader gunner drone operator. The Manta crew was usually a single medical specialist with four engineers, combined with the heavy nanoforges. The logistics lines of the old were required to maintain the massive machines were largely redundant, 
since the tank could produce its own ammunition as well as even repair damaged hull sections. Lords of the battlefield, they were usually called by the Terrans. With artillery and red leg king of the battle and infantry of the blue leg queen of battle, where most species had moved to hover tank, usually using grav systems. The Terrans still used treads on their main battle tanks with hover systems for their light tanks and scouting tanks. The tanks rolling across the ravaged and savage landscape were part of the 3rd Armored Division, using the Terran Confederacy standards, had over a thousand heavy tanks. They were all damaged to one extent or another, some rolling coal with thick black smoke pouring out of damaged sections that the Greenies were still trying to get under control. They still moved forward in a serrated formation, firing arcs cleared for the forward and flanks, the ones in the rear rolling head back with their turrets turned around. They had landed three days ago on a hard drop in tank cradles with the 1st Talca Marines and the 8th Infantry Division dropped podding in with them. Three days of fighting when the precursors had been pushed back far enough for the front lines to rotate out. Armor O was the great most high of the planet Slutmurt's armor force. He'd been in charge of a quarter billion tanks when the precursor autonomous war machines had come across the resonance zone through the hull breaches and assaulted the entire system. For eight days, the great most high Antar had thrown his ship against the massive war machines of the precursor forces, steadily losing ground, steadily having his lines penetrated. Until on the seventh day, the precursors had begun landing on Slutmurtz itself. The armor O had been in charge of a quarter million tanks and three million troops, just as the great most high of the armor. That had been five days ago. Four days ago, he had been down to less than 50% of his original forces. Most of his maintenance and support units ground beneath the armored fist of the precursors. Three days ago, he had been at 25% and had resigned himself to failure. He had recalled all of his tanks and had them ring the last of the metropolises, dedicating his tanks to anti-air defenses as his remaining troops dug in. The majority of the infantry had deserted four days ago. Then he had heard it. The roar that every Lanaclan commander dreaded to hear. Heavy metal incoming! He had despaired. The Terrans were coming. Even if a armor O was to obtain victory, he knew the Terrans would smash him like a bug on a windshield. Less than an hour later, the second roar was heard. Heavy metal is here! He had looked at his staff, shaking his great head, and told them that they were all surely doomed. The Great Most High Sho'o-Apolo-O had reported that the Terran ships had not attacked him, but had immediately engaged in the precursor vessels, slamming into them with fire and fury that had left Sho'o-Apolo-O's analysis of the staff shaken. A Amara-O had noticed that the precursor forces had broken off the attack against his own forces and had retreated, regrouping as the Terrans had attacked the precursor forces that had virtually owned the entire system. The great most high of armor had put his face in his hands in despair, when the next lines roared out, Hold the line! 
He had seen the footage. He knew that Raw meant that the Terrans would be making Bladenfall with all the fury one could expect from a savage primate armed with high tech. He made sure every one of his secondaries knew that any engagements with the Terrans would result in his own people firing upon anyone too stupid to load. The Terrans had opened with orbital strikes on the massed precursors, including several of the precursor ships that were the size of small cities that had multiple planet falls and begun to extract resources and produce hordes of ancillary combat machines. The drop cradles and drop pods had come next. The massive warbacks that were hundreds of feet high had slammed into the ground, using their very velocity as a weapon to clear their landing path. The drop cradles had disgorged the tanks of the 3rd Armor Division. That was three days ago. Now Great Most High, a armorer O, stood outside of his tank, being more than a little concerned when he saw the size and lethality of the Terran tanks. It was one thing to see it in one's drone footage. It was another to see the massive war machines with the naked eye. Part of him felt as if he should be angry when his implant pinged the armored figures of the 1st Talcan Marine Division, beings who had been Neo-Sapien servants only two years before. But he'd seen the footage, seen that they had fought just as fiercely as the Terrans. The tank had slowed down and come to a stop to the nearest to him was massive. The huge turbine engines whined as they shut down, and the Terran who was half out of the hatch pushed himself out and stood up. A armorer O knew enough about the Terrans to know that the beam climbing down was tall and broad, even for Terrans. He took off his helmet and revealed that the helmet's smart visor had been concealed a set of black metal cyber eyes. He also knew the Lanikland people were at war with the Lemurs. The Terran walked up, spitting brown juice out of a broken tarmac. Before nodding. General Tucker, Terran Confederate Army, 3rd Armor Division, the big human said, putting out an opposable thumbs into his belt. Great Most High, A Armorer, O, the Lanaclan said, looking over at the human. The adaptive camouflage uniform kept shifting to conceal the Terran. He had on heavy boots, a belt with a holstered pistol, and his helmet hanging from what looked like a water container on the belt. There were patches on the upper biceps of the uniform, two different ones, as well as a TC army on the chest patch and trucker on the other. Above the TC army were three different embroidered tags that A. Almora O had no idea of the significance of. It was threadbare compared to A. Almoro's decorative sash and his badges of rank on them. His rank was covered or his jeweled and inlaid pistol. Glad we got here in time to keep them out of the remaining cities, Trucker said, spitting at the end of the sentence. A armorer O realized that the Terran had some kind of cut between his lower lip and lower mandible gum line. Sorry we didn't get here earlier. We were a few light weeks out when we detected the hell jumps on our scatters. A armorer O knew that what he had said next would make the difference. Better late than never, A armorer O said carefully. Ain't that the truth, Trucker said. He waved at the scorched and shattered terrain behind him. My men and the 8th Infantry, as well as the two brigades from 1st Talcon, are gonna sit up here. Get our refit reloading and rest done. The armorer nodded. 
I read that transmitted from your Admiral Nordrak. Smoky, no, Drakkar nodded, spitting again. A armorer took the time to reach into his satchel and pull out a wad of stem cut. He was exhausted from trying to balance keeping the precursors out of the cities and keeping his men alive. He jammed it into his mouth and chewed for a moment, looking over the area as if he was envisioning the encampment. Are your men for facilities? Trucker asked once a armorer o emulated Trucker and spit cut juice on the ground. Our bases were destroyed days ago. My men are overstressed. Our vehicles are beginning to break down. We're nearly out of ammunition, a armorer o said, to the horror of his subordinates. Give us a few hours. I'll have the boys from 3rd Coscom set up an R-cubed area for your men. Those boys can make a refit point out of a pile of sticks and some old gum, Trucker said. How's the city power grid? Failed, Almero admitted. The precursors destroyed the power plant the day before you arrived. I'll have Coscom see what they can do, Trucker said, frowning around the black metal of his cyber eyes. I'll have them prioritize water purification, surge control, and power for the city. Take the pressure off the civilians. A armorer O nodded slowly. The native species, can they fight? The armorers put cut juice in the ground. We have not armed them. They're neo-sapiens, one of A armorer's adjutants began to object. You will shut up now, A armorer O said glaring at the fifth most high with his side and rear eyes on that side. The adjutant shut up. Millen thinks the reason the precursors are moving the way they are in system is because they have another wave coming in. They wanted the planet and the processing plants intact. Coscom believes that they're going to use this as a logistics space to stage another jump further into what you called Neo-Sapien Rimworlds, Trucker said. We need more guns, a armorer said slowly. A lot more guns. These guys were a mix of Type 1 and Type 2 precursors, and a smattering of the hybrid upgrade ones. The two big harvester class AWMs are Type 3 and are hanging back, Trucker said. He sighed and spit out on the ground again. The Type 3's bad news. The hybrids are pretty tough customers. A armorer O waved to his coordinates to bring a pair of chairs at a table. He shuddered and inflated his crest before slowly letting them deflate in the approximation of a yawn. Tell your men to stop digging in, A armorer O said tiredly. Trucker nodded and A armorer O found himself jealous that the Lima was so energetic after three days of mobile combat. Trucker turned away, talking too quiet to hear. One hand pressed to the side of his implant. A armorer O settled gratefully in a chair and looked at the Terran tanks. They looked like every armored being's nightmares, where every other race had laser-compressed ion slugs, plasma, or high wattage lasers. The Terrans used mission-variable kinetic munitions with a variety of payloads and fuse types. He'd seen a single Terran tank shoot through three precursor tanks with a single shot getting all three. Worse, they were fast, could fire on the move and even fire on the inside arc of a high-speed turn. And apparently, the Lima and Manta crews could live in the tanks for days, weeks, months at a time. A armorer owner could see where several tanks and crews getting fires under control and shook his head at the idea of a crew staying in a tank 
that had a fire in the internal spaces, much less still driving it into combat and afterwards. Trucker came back, saw the table, and sat down. He pulled a water container from his mouth, then a metal cup from the inside of the carrier, and set it down. He dug in his thigh pocket and pulled out a plus bottle, poured some in the metal cup, and then added the water. You able to metabolize alcohol? Trucker asked. A armorer O nodded. Tannic acid and caffeine! Trucker pulled out two red packets out of his pocket and then dug out a few tan packets. Yes, a armorer O admitted. Got a canteen cup? Trucker asked, pouring a red pack and a few of the tan packs into the alcohol and water. He twisted the red packet and slapped it on the side of the metal cup. Bring me a metal cup to drink out of, a armorer O ordered. He would rather die than show weakness in front of the big Terran Lima. How bad was it? Trucker asked, spinning off the side of the table. Nearly 60% of the planet's population is dead, a armorer O said. He caught himself, wringing his lower hands together. Hobber stopped, then decided that he had nothing to hide from the big Lima. Trucker shook his head, wincing. Like I said, we would have gotten here sooner. The armorer realized that the big Lima wasn't just offering an empty platitude to make a armorer feel better. He honestly meant it. Sucks when civvies get caught in the grinder, but the clankers, they go after the civvies, Trucker said. He spit again as one of a armorer's subordinates strutted up, then set down a small metal cup that belonged in a child's playset. Here you go, great highmost, the functionary said. Trucker narrowed his eyes and then shook his head. You're an armor man, right? A armorer guessed at the context. Yes, I've commanded the tanks for over 200 years. Trucker touched his temple and then turned to face his own tank. One of the front hanchers opened. One of his men stood up and threw something once and then again before vanishing back into the tank and closing the hatch. A armorer O realized it was a shell casing, 60 millimeters wide and 120 millimeters tall. It still smelled of burnt propellant. Trucker slapped the black painted shell casing on the table. The first one had poured the contents of his own cup into. The other, he poured the alcohol in it. Then packets, twisting the red packet and snapping it against the side of the casing. Tank commanders don't drink out of something like that kid's cup. Trucker said, shaking his head. Terrans are a mental people, went through a armorer's mind. Try that, Great Most High, Trucker said, tossing the packets into the breeze. Keep Terra beautiful, litter slatmert. A armorer knew that it had to be a joke. The inflection, the slightly sarcastic tone, but he was unsure how it was supposed to be a joke. A armorer sipped at the steaming brew and almost gag. It was thick with tannic acid, caffeine, and alcohol, as well as propellant residue that had dissolved into liquid. Salute, Trucker said, raising the shell casing and taking a drink out of it. He smacked his lips and gave a tooth-bearing grimace of happiness. Nothing like the taste of victory. A armorer O nodded. I'll make this a ritual my commanders must follow. Victory or defeat, they will taste it with their own tongues. What will you do with my men, Terran Trucker? A armorer asked the question that had been burning in his mind for three days. 
Trucker took another drink out of the shell casing and set it down. Well, we could ignore the precursors and go at one another like two drunks in an alley fighting over the last narco brew and let the civilians all die, Trucker said. That, uh, is an option, a armorer said. We can have separate theaters of operation, Trucker suggested. Where you would be forced to rush in to save my men due to inferior equipment, a armorer said. They have fighting spirit, but, uh, he trailed off. I don't doubt your men are brave. Bravery and confidence doesn't stop the hype of you round, though, the big lever said. Or I can help you figure out how to refit your men, interlock you into a battle plan. And you can help us by taking on the lighter clankers while we lock horns with the big boys. A armorer nodded. That would be better. My tanks are much, much smaller than yours. Wait till you see the bolo, sir. Tucker laughed. They make my tanks look like toy cars. I hear three of them have been successfully defending a metroplex, a armorer said. Our satellites cannot see much. Trucker nodded. Three bolos can take out a bailar in open combat. The bailar can't take off, and the bolos that gets a bead on it will blow it out of the sky. I can't bring in another Balar or other reinforcements of the Bodos will blow it into scrap metal. The city is safe since they can even interdict orbital shots. I hear you have former Neosapiens, a armorer said slowly. First Alka Marine Division and our first Recon Division, Trucker said. They're disciplined. They'll fight next to you if ordered. A armorer knew better than to question the Terran discipline. I am loath to ask, but have you heard from your homeworld? A armorer asked. Trucker shook his head. No, it doesn't matter, though. A armorer raised an eye crest. It doesn't. Trucker took another drink from the shell casing. Nope. Casualties are to be expected in war. The soul system is one steady system. An important one, sure. But even without it, he leaned forward slightly. We can still beat your people. A armorer, before seeing the footage of Terran fight over the last three days, would have scoffed at that statement. Now, he just nodded in agreement. Trucker leaned back in the chair, taking another drink. But that's not this fight. There's almost a billion sentient beings here that are relying on us. If you want to fight after the clankers get thumped, you and I can go somewhere private and punch each other in the face. Right now, the civilians are relying on us. Ayamaro nodded. The Terran made sense. Made more sense than his orders that he had refused to carry out. Let us work together, Terran Trucker, Ayamaro said. He took another drink of the horrible substance in the dirty shell casing, finding it tasted better the second drink. Save these Neo-Sapiens and let our governments worry about the rest. Works for me, Trucker said. End of chapter. Chapter 302.2 A armor-o waited until the back deck lowered from his tank before trotting out. He took off his helmet as his hooves thudded against the dirt and brown grass, blinking his six eyes as he brought everything into focus. Terrans were running everywhere. Before his driver could even finish shutting down the fusion reactor, there were half a dozen Terrans wearing loading frames with built-in tools pooling the damaged armor from the tank. One Terran, 
a big human with a patch over his two eyes, stopped in front of a armory. Stop Sergeant Casey, Terran Army 3rd Coscom 144th Ordnance Company, the human said, introducing himself to Armour quickly and succinctly. My men are going to check your tank out, double-check your plasma shells, your compression chamber, the alignment of your magnetic rails, he said. He turned and pointed at the hover fan skirts. We'll check your plenum chambers real quick. See if there's something my boys can spot repair, or if we need third shop over here. Very good, human, a armorer said, slightly startled at the way the Terran had not even bothered trying to polish his hind hooves, and just jumped into the important stuff. Our computers are all really last gen. We can probably get a warboy into your tank, but it'll be tight. I can have the warboy case loaded in and wired up if you can spare... Oh, uh... The Terran stared off into the distance, and a armorer who knew that he was consulting his data link. A armorer who expected computer hardware to take a month or two, maybe even six, if it could be done at all. Three hours per tank, two if I get the greenies from 19th Electronic Warfare Maintenance over here, the Terran said. Little guys are wizards with tech. Saved my ass. You have 18 hours to do what must be done to my men's tanks. A armorer said, emulating Trucker's attitude and tones. The Terran male turned to his men that were working on A armorer's tank. You heard the man, 18 hours. I want all these tanks racked, packed, stacked in six, he yelled. Dimming gears, get your foot pads and gear, he yelled at one of the massive insectoid soldiers. A armorer turned and stepped back, surprised to see one of the big black Terran warbogs. General Tucker's compliments, sir. The warbolt growled, making a follow motion. He's at the Theater Tactical Operations Command. Very well, Terran, a armor said. The warbolt led them on a weaving course through the reefed area, letting a armor see that his men and vehicles were getting priority, at least to a armor eyes, on refit and repair. His wounded were being treated, his men being fed, and a armorer saw a tank put up in a makeshift sleeping slings being set up. He saw two Terrans helping an exhausted Lanaklan to a sleeping sling, telling the Lanaklan that things would be better after some sleep. What boggled his mind was that eight hours ago he had met with Trucker, and the humans acted as if they had benefited from weeks of relaxation. There was a group of Terran soldiers jogging in perfect formation, packs on their packs, weapons held in their hands, back straight. The lead one had a pole with a flag of a Terran 8 with an arrow through it on it that he held up into the air. Eight up! The Terran jogging beside the formation yelled. Put him down! The Terrans roared back. A armorer O managed to not flinch or flee. That was out of respect for your rank, sir. The war bore growled after they had gone by. They seem, uh, eager, a armorer said. The war made a grinding sound. Nobody likes PT, sir. You're right, though, sir. Everyone's chomping at the bit to go slam-bang some armor metal. Armor? Autonomous war machine, the war said, pausing while a large-wheeled vehicle moved by carrying a steam-driven turbine engine. Slamming clankers isn't like killing some poor bastard sent to die by his leaders. We'd rather smash metal than people. Oh, Amaro said softly. Great most high, his data pinged. Hey, Amaro here, he answered. 
The Terrans are all insisting the engines on our tanks be replaced. They say the engines and fan mechanisms are all showing something called microfractures and resonance-induced crystalline alignment. His twelfth most high, now his second, said in outraged tones, I told them that those engines had been reliable for test starting for over a million years. Are you a maintenance technician? A armorer asked. No. Do we have any maintenance techs alive and here to work on the tanks? No. Then get out of their way and let them work. A armorer bellowed out. He cut the link and looked at the warborg. My apologies. My second in command does not believe that our tanks need repair. They were in storage before the clankers arrived, correct? The warborg asked. For almost ten million years, they are as reliable design. A armorer stated, Uh-huh, if you say so, the warborg said as they passed the Terran light-armored fighting vehicle. They weighed nearly a hundred tons and had armor thicker than a armorer's heavy tank. A armorer would have been offended with a little as six days ago. He knew his heavy tank only qualified to the Terrans as a light-armored hover vehicle, suitable only for scouting and fast attack raids. The Terran light-armored fighting vehicle mounted a heavier cannon than a armorer's tank, which had a 90mm rapid-fire tri-barrel plasma cannon that could put out 12 shots per minute. The light vehicle by Terrans had a rapid-fire single-barrel 60mm autocannon that put up up to 200 rounds per minute. He's seen one of those light tanks shred a precursor, AWM, that his tank could not face without at least five others through careful maneuvering that would at least have three tanks dead. The Terran vehicles had killed the AWM one-on-one in less than ten seconds. A week ago, they would have grated on his nerves. Six months ago, he had not understood how the Terrans just tore through the Lanarkin forces like they were made of cheap glass. Now, he got it. What made him slightly afraid was the way the Terrans hadn't even asked for his surrender. Just landed, attacked the precursors, and just maintained that the Lanarkin forces who did not fire on them would not be fired upon. It was an uneasy truce. A armorer who knew that he was facing punishment for refusing to attack Terran forces while they were engaged with the precursors. But he wasn't going to throw away the lives of his men to follow the orders of a system most high who was hiding in a bunker. The theater tactical operations command was in a metal cargo box buried under dirt and protective plates. Cables ran out of the box, out of holes cut with a torch, and vanished into the pipes where they buried in the dirt. I'll be out here, sir, the warborg growled. Thank you, a armorer said. He went through the airlock door and into the TTOC, preparing for a debate he knew would be taking place about the best way to destroy the precursor machines with the least amount of dedicated resources. Instead, there were nearly a dozen beings, six Terrans, two of the large insects, two Tarkin, and two large gray-skinned Syrians all in adaptive camouflage, all looking at a holotank. Around them were consoles where troops were passing on messages or handling incoming messages, as well as putting data up on large data slates. Have 19th armor rotate out with 15th armor. The precursors are breaking contact. 
We'll send in 11th Air Cavalry Regiment to rip them up while they retreat. Get those boys in there with a the brute in the dirt. A large insect was saying. Once 15th is in position, have them do a lockdown. Pinch them from the sides, bunch them up, and slam them through the middle. Yes, sir, one of the Syrians said. A armorer was surprised that the voice from the big muscular bipedal lizard sounded female. Drucker, how long until third armor is field capable? The insect asked, taking out what A. Armuro had learned was a cigarette and lighting it. He puffed smoke out of his legs. My men need sleep, say, um, fifteen hours, Tucker said, lifting up a bottle so that he could spit into it. You have eighteen, the insect said. He turned to A. Armuro. Ah, great most high of armor, A. Armuro. Kind of you to join us. Thank you, Confederate. Ayamaru said, still unsure of the Terran's rank system. Your men are exhausted and in need of rest, the big insect said, puffing smoke out of his legs. That is not a criticism of your men's bravery. He fought on despite terrible casualties, refusing to give up because the civilians were behind you. That is admirable. For some reason, having the massive insect praise his decision that was being criticized by his own people made a armorer feel much better. The problem, Great Most High, is that one cannot be sugar-coated, the insect said. He huffed smoke. I came up blue-legged, so perhaps have a black leg like Trucker tell you will be more palatable. Yes, a armorer said, turning to the big human. Trucker spit into a bottle and shook his head. Thanks, General Kodraka. No charge, the insect said, then turned back to the others. We've got precursor AWMs contained for now, but those big boys on the ground are pumping up reinforcements like a runaway Clone World's new U-shop. Traka moved over to Aamaru. No offense, Great Most High, but your tanks all need refit, at the least, badly need a refit. He moved over to a smaller holotank and made a motion. The schematic wireframe for his tanks appeared in the holotank. Your tanks were in storage for too long, Traka said. You started them every couple thousand years, but that's not good enough. You also just fired them up and drove the ones that worked into combat. Ayamaru nodded. We had a little warning. I want to tell you that that's no excuse, Trucker sighed. Terrans learned that the hard way several times. What's the problem? Directly inform me, Ford. Ayamaru said, trying out human slag. Tell you straight, Trucker asked. Yes. A. Amru said, feeling proud of himself. Trucker sighed. All right, all your tanks are shit. A. Amru tamped down on his outrage. Your fans have bad blade angles. Your fan shafts are too thin and made of substranded materials. Your armor is too thin. The laminate layering is cracked to the point that you have micro-bubbles. Trucker kept highlighting every part. Your engines already have metal fatigue, vibration crystallization on the low-grade battle steel. Your weapons are suffering already, and your ammunition is 20% inert. Ayamaru looked at the wireframe. He could see little images circling each line that came up from a red part. He went to point at one, touching it, and a tiny picture expanded to show an image of one of his tank's armor at high magnification. He could see the striation, see the tiny bubbles between the two layers of laminate, as well as the cracks. His implant translating the Terran writing. 
vibration-induced metal fatigue cracking, age-related bubbling, poor ablation quality, superconductor breakdown in the thermal protection layer, radiation seepage through the protective layer, recommendation total armor replacement. He touched the window of the main plasma cannon. Damaged compression chamber, damaged loader, damaged feeder, damaged battle rotation mechanism. Heat pitting on the interior of the barrels. Recommendation, total replacement. He went through the notes silently, watching as more notes appeared. Inadequate computer systems. Inadequate electronic warfare systems. Substandard battle screen projectors. Missing redundant control systems. He stared at the bottom. Estimated time to refit, nine hours. A armorer looked up at Trucker. I am ashamed. You held them for days with those tanks, that equipment. You have nothing to be ashamed of, Trucker said, shrugging and spitting into the bottle. You lost over two-thirds of your forces, but you're facing clankers, and they don't pay attention to casualties and press for victory. What do you suggest, human Trucker? Aamru asked. Trucker smiled, but Aamru felt too tired to flinch away. How about we tell the mechanics to open the TC hatch and replace everything else? It took Aamru a moment to pass what the birdie human meant. That is amusing, Aamru stated. A nice way to say my tanks must be replaced. I've had tanks replaced. Cry little sister out there was replaced a year ago after we took a barrel pull hit. Trucker shrugged. Had a tank completely blown out from under me back during the Margite War. There's no shame if you aren't wasting the lives. Ayamru shuddered. Over half the population is dead. Almost half the population is alive, thanks to your men. Trucker countered. He rubbed his face, his palm making rasping sounds against the bristle of his chin. You took to the field with poor training, poor equipment, little more than a willingness to do what had to be done. Not many other species I've met could do better. No, Aamru could sense the truth in the human's words. He decided to change the subject, as praise from the huge lemur disturbed him. Do you not worry about refitting my vehicles and arming my men? Tucker shrugged. A little... I worry I might give your men delusions of grandeur and think you can take on the Matthias main battle tank or a Trianidad Talk assault armored vehicle. No offense, but infantry can pop your tanks like bubbles. I'm not worried about during the fight. The fight's gonna be nasty. I'm worried about afterwards. Aamru nodded. I understand. I've seen your tanks and realize that you could have just crushed us beneath your treads. But I don't want to, Trucker said, then spit into the bottle. My people are at war with yours. Aamru broached the subject a little more bluntly than he had intended to. And the precursors don't care. They'll happily kill us both, and it looks like we've got Type 3 ones coming in soon, Trucker said. He looked over at the big insect. General, I'm going to go outside with Aamru, get some tanker time to talk to him. If I need you, I'll have my main man ping you, the large insect in charge said. He turned back to the one gray-skinned reptiles. I realize that you are no tic-tac, but so far you have performed admirably. Thank you, General, the reptile answered as Trucker and Aamru left the half-buried cargo container. 
When he got outside, Trucker heaved a sigh of relief. The TOC always makes me feel claustrophobic, he chuckled. Hey, Amaru frowned. But you're a tanker. Yeah, weird, huh? Trucker grinned, spitting on the ground. He looked at Ayamaru. I've seen what beings like your men can do with proper equipment, with leadership and a war plan that doesn't just waste you in unsupported frontal attacks. I've seen your bravery. General Akrit and Major Atrek are two men I want to have by my side in a fight. I had thought old Ironfeathers was dead, Ayamaru said. I worked with him a long time ago. Fast attack air mobile power armor, if I recall. Trucker nodded. He and his remaining men do SAR now. Save me after a second battle of Talgan. At a greet, he was armor most high, correct? Much like myself, a armor ooze said. Trucker nodded. He's in charge of First Recon Division. Brave man. He and his men are skilled. He took part in the battles in Talgan, a armor asked. Trucker nodded. Spitting tobacco juice on the ground. Yep, it got bad during the second battle, but Agreed and his men fought the whole time. Those recon tanks made all the difference. Now they both here? A armorer asked. Trucker nodded. Agreed and I usually work hand in hand. I'm more of a face-to-face slam bang. He's a slasher. As for old Iron Feathers, well. He's with the 13th Evac Hospital, and I try to avoid him if you know what I mean. Ayamaru found himself chuckling at that. We've got some time. The general says 18 hours. He means 18 hours. Get some food in you, get some rest, and we'll have ourselves a little bit of a clickety-tick so that we can get you and your officers up to speed. Clickety-tick, he asked, surprised his implant hadn't translated the words. Sorry. Trianidad slang means having a quick informal meeting where everyone speaks their mind, Trucker said. You know, soldiers, we pick up slang from all over. Ayamaru nodded, instructing his implant on the meaning of the word. Um, listen, we found out there's a problem with your troops' normal rations, Trucker said. The drugs, Ayamaru asked. Trucker nodded. Your own government is drugging you guys pretty hard. How long have you known? Two years ago, against the precursors. We were running mass reclamation for rations. Everyone got sick, Ayamaru said. He shook his head. Unfortunately, we're all back on them again. Trucker nodded. Confederate Medical is trying to come up with something to let you detox without going through nasty withdrawals. Right now, I advise leaving your men on it. Ayamaru just nodded. Something about the big lima calmed him. Even the sharp criticism of A. Amaru's tank seemed more like a statement of fact than an insult. I know your doctrine, Trucker said. How? A. Amaru asked. Trucker tapped his implant as he spit. Read your books. Like I was saying, I know your doctrine. You're supposed to get artillery, drone, and close air support. But tell me the reality. A. Amaru felt his stomach clench. What is in the doctrine is what actually happens are two different things. Trucker nodded. Your grav strikers are worse than useless, under-armored, no battle screens worthwhile for anything but clearing dust out, inadequate weaponry. They don't bring any burt to the dirt. I don't understand burt to the dirt, Ayamaru said. Burt, the sound of rapid-fire autocannon makes. 
Slamming shells into the ground, Trucker clarified. Ah, what about you? Ayamaru asked. I can trust the brute boys to hit the enemy even if the enemy is inside my formation without hitting my men, Trucker said. As for artillery, we're down to the centimeter even without smart munitions. The drone warfare guys, they run either master pod systems or throwaway swarms. Either way, I'm covered. Ayamaru shook his head. I can't imagine that. Artillery often hits our own lines. Our drones are knocked down by the precursor electronics warfare, and our strikers rarely get into range to engage the enemy to support us. Even our missiles sometimes knock onto us. Yeah, we won't be using you guys for that then, Trucker said. He shook his head. Let's get you to the mess hall, get some food in you, and after you get some sleep, we'll make it back up and put our heads together, figure out how to lock you into our war plan. Ayamaru nodded, looking over the field where his men had parked their vehicles. Refit and repair frames had gone up, fabrication systems were putting out parts for his tank, and ammunition was being produced, all while he'd been talking to Trucker. He was suddenly glad that they were on the same side. Then two words floated up out of his mind that made his blood run cold. For now. End. Of chapter. Chapter 303. Moa Walker backed up, shaking all four hands out, stomping on the pedal to flush the weapon with coolant before stepping back forward and grabbing the four handles of the rotary plasma cannon. He held down the triggers, the barrels howling, and raked the six barrels worth of firepower across the front of the precursor machines coming straight at his fighting position. Half of his men had fled when the precursors came over the horizon, running off as they threw their rifles to the side. But Walker knew that it wouldn't matter. If he couldn't stop the precursors here, then there would be nowhere to hide. They'd sweep into the city two miles behind him, first carrying every living being in the suburbs before moving into the city center. Many of his fellow Lanicklelands kept claiming they would head for the shelters, shooting their way in if they had to. Moa Walker knew that the precursor machines would just dig their way down to the shelters and kill everyone inside at their leisure. The weapon was beeping, overheating, warning him that he was supposed to only fire ten seconds out of every sixty. But he ignored it. Sweeping the barrel across the nap of the earth line, the heavy plasma machine gun rounds caused the precursors to explode mid-air. The ground ones were advancing, and he was out of missiles, drones, or fire, and forget rockets. He was even out of grenades. He was the only one left at the fighting position. Everyone else had either fled or dead. There is only enough for one, roared into his head, and he blinked knowing his rear left eye, blind as it was, was leaking blood again. His helmet psychic screens were turned up as far as he could manage, the only reason he was able to withstand point-blank assault on this very mind. He could see that the fire from the positions to the right and left of him was starting to dwindle. His fellow Unified Military Council soldiers either dying or abandoning their positions. Or, like Mo'a Walker's positions most high, rocking back and forth, giggling, and eating his own fingers. Mo Walker knew that he was covered in sweat, 
his armor's internal environment systems had been giving up after three straight hours of combat. He kicked out with his rear hoof, kicking the I'm in need of assistance button, knowing it wouldn't do any good. But training demanded it, as his ammo hopper reported that he was down to less than 10% of his ammunition. Less than two minutes of fire at the rate that he was burning through ammunition. Without even bothering to check, Moe Walker knew that he had no rifle. He had been assigned a static emplacement and was a heavy gunner. He had no use for small arms according to the best military theorists. He wished he had one. The only small arms weapon in the fighting position was the Most High's pistol, and it was out of ammunition after the Most High had used all six rounds to shoot three of Moe Walker's better soldiers. He kicked it again as his ammo fell below 10%, and he saw the precursors had sent the big boys, the massive ones rolling on treads or hovering on huge graviton pods. Clink! Moe Walker looked around stepping back and shaking his hands as he stomped the coolant pedal again. The lights flickered in his fighting position. The radar screen came on, buzzed several times, then came back. He saw the empty missile launcher do a function check, same with the targeting system for the empty launcher. The point defense system rebooted, flickered through the function check, then, uh, to more Walker's relief, began firing again. The precursor machines were still coming, Artillery and rockets fired by the machine slamming near his firing position. He kicked the pedal to lower the fighting position just as a small, cobbled-together-looking drone zipped into his fighting position, hovered for a few seconds and tried to dart out, banging against the suddenly slammed closed shutter. The precursors were less than a mile out. Ow! My head! The drone squeaked from the door. Mo Walker looked at the little drone. It was painted and colored in the Unified Military Council colors, but had a Terran Space Force logo on the fan drive shafts. It was about as wide as his chest and had optical sensors on what looked like the most sensitive sensor strips on it. The drone clicked a few times, clattering on the ground, the fans whirring. It went still. Um, a little help, the drone asked. Crap, can't see now. Identify yourself, Mo Walker ordered, lifting up a hoof. Recon Warboy 66892A, the droid said. Terran Aerospace Force. Mo Walker raised his hoof for Gaia, intending on stomping it, panic filling him. He had heard of the terrifying Terran battle cry almost three days ago, but nothing since then. Wait, wait, we're on your side, the droid squeaked. Don't step on me. Mo Walker lowered his hoof slowly. What are you doing? Seeing who's alive and who's dead, the drone answered. He's an artillery scout, the faced radar array computer said. Hey, 98425, the drone said. Mo Walker looked at the screen of the radar array and the drone and back. Hey, 66892, the radar system said. Hey, Lanik land dude, flip him over. We need to pass data to 227 field artillery. Mo Walker frowned. Is this some guy a trick? No, it's war. You want to live? Flip 668292 over so that I can pass him my data and he can pass it on to Mullint, the radar said. I must be going mad, Mo Walker thought to himself, but he bent down and flipped the drone over. It whirred and lifted up, the fan spinning so fast that it looked transparent. 
Why doesn't he use Graviton? Warwalk asked. I'm almost invisible to precursor senses, the drone said, bobbling. Oh man, your EM shielding is on. Mo Walker kicked the fighting position lever and arose up, the shutters grinding up. Thanks, the drone said and buzzed out. Damn, this computer is so thin that it makes my ass feel fat, the radar said. Mo Walker grabbed the handles of the plasma gun and brought it back to aim. The plasma gun suddenly yanked out of his hands. I need that for point defense, the radar said. Hey, I'm the one fighting here, Mo Walker said. I duck in about 90 seconds, the radar said. The gun swiveled slightly and started firing single-spaced shots. Why? Bo Walker asked, frowning again. See those little pillars of blue smoke in front of the precursors and the red in front of the precursor lines? The radar asked. The gun fired four more spaced shots. Yes, Mo Walker said, squinting outside. There are dozens of them, roughly a hundred meters apart from one another. Ranging shots, the radar said. Our little buddy out there is giving live feed to the gunners of 227, who's gonna wipe these guys off the map. There's too many, Mo Walker said. They fired back at the artillery. Yeah, well, they're an army, the radar said. Ten seconds, my one a duck. There is only enough for one. Die alone. Mo Walker snorted, staring out at the smoke. There were too many precursors for any type of artillery aside from atomic strike to stop the... The world exploded. The explosion started in the air. For a split second, there was just red and yellow bubbles with white and bright blue cores. Then Mo Walker felt the air being sucked out of the fighting position. The computer reacted sluggishly, but still reacted, dropping the fighting position down. The earth rumbled, erasing the vibration of the oncoming precursor machines. The inside of the fighting position creaked, and Mo Walker's ears popped several times. He hugged himself as it seemed to go on and on. Finally, it stopped right as the fighting position began beeping. It pumped up, the shutters rolling back to reveal nothing but smoke and wreckage. The vibration was still going on. What is that? Mo Walker asked, wishing he could see behind him. Eighteenth Trianidad Infantry Regiment, the radar said. An entire ice cream carton of big-ass bugs armored to march through hell and carrying enough firepower to kill the devil. He saw the stubby aircraft coming fast and low, traces connecting them to the ground as they swept by. It sounded like a dragon breaking wind as the aircraft strafed the ground in a long, slow attack run that peeled off. Then a four-legged insect ran by, running faster than any ground car Bo Walker had ever ridden in, heavy guns on their abdomens firing, some of them firing mortars or rocket packs instead of heavy guns. They ran in perfect formation, perfect silence, just the roaring of their guns. Mo Walker thought that he heard music. Here comes the General Kawax boys, the radar said. The armored fist of Alpha Centauri. The tanks rode by next, huge tracked vehicles, their guns roaring, point defense weapons slicing at the sky, mortars on the back deck firing off dozens of shells at a time in one ripple. The tracks clattered as they went by as close as a meter to the fighting position. The music was loud, pounding, 
and nothing but raw aggression. Track and gun, track and gun, pound for pound, it's a lot more fun. Then there was just the sound of tanks receding as they drove forward, following the giant insects. Looks like you get to live another day, the radar said. More Borgs from the 42nd Infantry Brigade coming up next. There's a truce on, but they'll shoot you in the head if you look at them funny. Oh, Bowalk said. He sat down and folded his legs so that he was in prone setting. Hey, you did good. You held them for a couple hours, long enough for us to get you. Gave us enough time to help save the city. The radar said, listen, good luck. I'm going to jump to the new bridge point. Luck. Um, good luck, Bo Walker said. He looked over at the position most high and saw that the other Lanarkland had bled to death. His fingers all missing. Mo Walker sat quietly, listening for the explosions of the fight. A part of him thought about getting up and looking, but instead he just sat there, staring at the zero percent on the Emma Hopper's digital display. He heard it again. Die alone. There was a knocking at the back hatch, and Mo Walker leaned forward and slammed the release for the rear ramp hatch. The hatch opened, and one of the big black metal bipeds opened it up. He had four barrel minigun over his shoulder and a rocket launcher over the other, in addition to a heavy rifle that he was holding. You alive in here? the Terran asked. Yes, Bo Walker said. Hey, we're pushing forward. You can stay here, go back to your own lines. I think they're setting up a few blocks in the suburbs. Or you can come with us, the Terran said. Mo Walker shuddered, breathing deep. I think I'll stay here for a little bit. Are you wounded? the Terran asked. No, Mo Walker said. Everything he had done, all the fighting, seemed like a waste of time. The Terrans had just blown everything up and roared right by. I'm going to assign someone to take you back to your lines, all right. You don't sound too good, the Terran said. Mo Walker looked at his positions most high. He was sitting there without a single finger left on all four hands, who had torn off his own ears. And he started laughing. Medic! The Terran yelled. Tinvaru Gestalt. I don't know. Doesn't seem right. Helping them after everything that they did. Nothing follows. Talcan Forgeholds. I don't know what the Terrans are doing. They're over there fighting some kind of weird psychic things. Over there fighting the Precursors. Over there fighting the Lanark Lands. Nothing follows. Ackletack Reflight. Did you ask the military liaisons? Nothing follows. Talcan Fortrals, if they know what's going on, they aren't saying. They won't even tell me what's going on in the 1st and 2nd Talcan Marine Divisions. Nothing follows. Tinvaru Gestalt. It's weird. I keep expecting Trianidad people to make him blurt out something silly. Nothing follows. Talcan Fortrals, I know, right? We just met them, and now they're gone. Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. It feels kind of lonely. End of chapter. Chapter 304 Planetary armor, great most high, a armorer-o, trotted up where, where the Terrans were working on his tank. There was a scaffolding around it, and at least half a dozen robots were busy replacing armor sections very quickly. There was a Terran in a powered loading frame standing outside his tank, holding a data state, looking it over. A armorer-o had noticed that the humans seemed to wear their helmets at all times. 
taking them off only inside of bunkers and other structures. He'd even seen tankers wearing the helmets while inside the tank. A noticeable difference from the Unified Council troops. Test 99928 Alpha 22, the human called out. From the data slate came the reply, Fire 99928 Alpha 22. A armorer U saw the port rear point defense system power up. The data slate kept talking. 99928 Alpha 22 rotation counterclockwise. The point defense system spun. As a armorer U watched, the point defense system went through a full function check. Cut 99928 Alpha 22, the Terran in the loading frame called out. The point defense systems depowered and a armorer U stepped up beside the Terran looking over his tank. His tank had been designed over 25 million years ago, improving the older design by far. It was lighter, it was greater speed, greater survival in combat, better weapons. It was supposed to be sleek looking with rounded edges, pleasing to the eye. Now it somehow looked blocky, almost unfinished. He could see a barrier behind his tank commander's hatch, and a gun had been added that could be fired from the beam outside of the TC hatch, or, judging from the additional cabling and boxes, fired from the inside. Most high, the human said, nodding. He tapped the data slab and pinged it. Dominguez, take over for me. Finish the final checks, he said. The giant insect on the data slate screen nodded and disappeared. What had happened to my tank? The armorer asked. Nothing major. Handles the same. Same speed, acceleration, turning radius, ground clearance. Cannon has the same range and attack profile. Only a few coaxial weapons, the Terran said. He cleared his throat. Um, not exactly coaxial. Bad habit of mine. I thought you were ordnance, the armorer asked. Oh, it gets blurry, the human said, shrugging. He reached out and rubbed the space between his eyebrows with one finger. Damn, a headache. I see more guns, a Marmaru said. The human nodded. You've got a 50 cal air-cooled general purpose heavy machine gun now. Three of them. That can be run from the hatches as well as provide point defense. Be operated from inside the vehicle and put on reflex mode. The human said, bringing up a schematic of the tank and his data pad and giving the data pad a flick so it projected the schematic in a hologram form right above the pad. We've fixed the problems with your compression chamber. Added a laser path clearance system for the plasma rounds. Fixed the problems with the automatic feed loader. Adjusted your fan blade tilt. Adjusted the fan blade tilt. Your fan shaft designs. Neyamaru had spent the better part of three centuries working with tanks. As the human called off and highlighted what had been changed, a armorer knew how effective each change would be, and a part of him wondered why exactly making these obvious adjustments took some half-crazed lever, whose use of fire was less time than some of the ammunition had been in the tank. Her armor, Lavinet, was cost-effective, sure, but a slight modification to layer thickness as well as remanufacturing increases its combat effectiveness without changing weight or bulk. A third of your crew injuries were from interior spalling, so we added an aerogel anti-spalling liner for the cost of about an inch of total crew space. That should keep your men from eating a face full of shrapnel when a round hits but doesn't penetrate. The human continued. 
Your computers are pretty thin, but we added a Warboy computing core and made space by changing the configuration of your anti-personal gun ammunition hoppers, since they'd wasted a lot of space. All of this in only ten hours? Ayamaru asked, looking around. He could see frames being taken apart by the Terran robots, see tanks being pulled apart by other tanks put back together. The robotic systems worked at high speed, and Aomaru felt a faint nervousness and anxiety at the amount of robotic servitors being used. Redesign and error catching took on nearly three hours, sir, the human said. He stoned, somewhat apologetic. Our initial design made it run so far out of specs that we had a couple of your guys try the new versions in EVR that they could barely drive them, much less fight effectively. So we had to go back to base stats. Hmm, I can understand that problem, Ayamaru said. The human shrugged again. Sir, the big problem is, well, to tell you straight, you're pretty much driving obsolete junk. No offense. I'm sure they were working before you ran into the precursors, who are tough sons of bitches without a doubt. But for real, actual modern battlefield, they're obsolete. How obsolete? Ayamaru asked, part of him refusing to believe this insane Mima but the majority of him recognizing that the Lima was undoubtedly right. Terran pre-diaspora tanks from the age of paranoia could take you. Nail-toed military force tanks using their generation of warfare tactics wiped the floor with you and only took 20% casualties wiping out your entire force. They were hitching at over two miles before you could get in range, using density-enhanced munitions in use at a time and getting your tanks before you could even engage them, using superior speed and turning capability to hold open the kill distance, the Terran said. He brought up a wireframe of a smaller-looking tank. Low profile, a quarter of the mass taken up by the big gun and its support systems. You have Cruiser 6. That tank has a crew of four. They can hand-load ammo faster than your auto-loading systems are. May I see it? Perhaps we are, Ayamaru asked. How old is the tech? About 10,000 years ago, the human said. He tapped a few keys on the datapad. There you go, sir. Step over there and touch the glitter ball. The base network will do the rest. Ayamaru moved over and touched the orb that twinkled and glittered. A holographic projection thrown out by the work ladder Serrani's tank. The world dissolved and reformed. He stood on the tarmac under a blue sky with white clouds. Words appearing in his vision telling him that he was in Uragoon, Mecha, Krautland, Tank, Motorpool during the Age of Paranoia. Virtual humans ran about, doing tasks, and he could see the tankers actually performing minor maintenance on the tanks themselves, instead of waiting for the maintenance section to do them. The letters appeared in midair again telling him that he was currently loaded into a historical educational virtual reality program without enhanced capabilities. Ayamaru had to admit, the tank was lethal-looking. He looked down to see his VR self as a human body, which felt a bit odd. He walked around the tank, examining it with a critical eye. He checked the specs, watched the video of the tank in action, he was startled to see it run off on fossil fuels refined to nearly be an explosive. He was an extraordinarily primitive, the computer systems compact and dedicated to his single tasks. He examined the specifications, watched the videos of it in action, watched the videos of the crew in action, 
even allowed the sim to have him take part. When it was over, he shook his head to clear it. The Terran in charge of the Aamaru's tank was supervising the scaffolding being removed. His tank had chalk X's on the sides. You all right, sir? The Terran asked. It was illuminating, Aamaru admitted. Privately, he'd been frightened by the sheer monomaniacal attitude Terrans had towards war. Sure, he had spent the better part of 300 years as a tanker, but what he had witnessed was entirely different. Those VR systems can be a little rough, the Terran admitted, shrugging. He reached up and rubbed between his eyebrows again, sighing with annoyance. Anyway, your tank is done. We're gonna finish up with the rest of them. The general wanted your tanks ready in 16 hours. Looks like we'll finish with the last of the tests in about two hours, giving us an hour to spare. Hayamaru nodded, swallowing thickly. Rearming and refitting over 10,000 tanks in 15 hours was a feat unheard of in Lanaklan military forces. We'll finish with trucker and accretes tanks about an hour after yours. A lot of guys came running coal when they came in. They've got all new tank designs, so we've got to do a bit more after-action checks than on yours, since yours had about a million years of design studies in the database, the human said. He gave a nod. I'll leave it to you, sir. Before Aamaru could say anything, the Terran was walking away, his loading frame making hissing and mechanical noises. Grok, count your wrenches. You've got an empty slot with a wrench harness. Looks like your 15mm wrench, the Terran called out. Rebaka, I only count seven data orbs. You should have eight. Bite it. Nigga-gigulk, where's your goddamn rifle? God damn it, Dominguez. How the hell are you going to get promoted if you can't make sure these guys don't accidentally shove their freaking tools up their asses? Turning away from the shouting Dima, Aamaru put it out of his mind as he moved up to his tank. He put his hand on the panel at the back and the tank and dutifully peeped and lowered the back ramp. He had to jump out of the way with a howl quickly and smoothly had unfolded. He trotted in, missing the fact that someone had drawn a dick on the motor ramp housing and moved over to his commander's harness. He brought the tank online, carefully going down the checklist, until it sat, weapons safely interlocked, vibrating. For the first time, it seemed to almost vibrate with a restrained malice, like he was eager to get into a fight. Same amount of munition, same types of ammunition. He examined the profiles of the ammo. Nearly triple the battle screen penetration, capable of three times the range accuracy, improved by 19%. Flight time reduced by 11.5%. He shook his head. The tank's compression chamber was nearly five times more efficient and cooled three times as fast, and he couldn't even really see what the Terrans had done. They probably just tapped it a few times with a wrench and told it that it was part of a tank. He snorted to himself. Each system now feels like a part of a whole instead of separate systems. He checked the radio, listening in to the broadcasts. Most of it was Terran radio chatter, and he was aware that he could listen in on the channels because of his rank, which felt odd listening to a Terran artillery battery fire, move, fire again, confounding precursor counter-battery systems and suckering them into revealing which machines had counter-battery capability so that the strikers could bring in the birch to the dirt and wipe them out. Sighing, he leaned back slightly. Hey, boss, he heard from his left, 
He looked over to the screen that the Terrans had added in time to see a digital representation of a Lanictalan face made up of swirling code from the screen. Hello, Ayamaru said carefully to the face. Who are you? I am Tank Combat Assistant, Warboy 837-6453832, the face said. It is up to you to give me an additional designation. Its tones were formal and serious. Takor sounds good, Ayamaru said. I am Takor. I'll help you run the auxiliary systems as well as keep the tank at optimum performance during combat and refit periods, the digital face said. It seemed to be firming up. You are planetary armor, great most high Ayamaru. Yes, Ayamaru said. He felt slightly off center. He had stepped early. Do you wish for me to wake up your war plan advisor? His name is Targrath, a former armor division commander during the Nectaran War, Takor said. He'll provide you with strategic and tactical advice and assist in interlocking properly with the Terran forces. Yes, please, Ayamaru said. There was a charming noise. I awakened again, a deep human voice said. The screen wavered and a Terran face appeared. I am General Turgath, Fifth Armor Division, Heavy Metal, Fifth Terran Republic. I am System Armor Most High Ayamaru, Unified Military Council, Ayamaru said. It is strangely easy to forget that the Terrans are not as old as the Councils. They have a weird feeling of age about them, Ayamaru thought to himself. Is it because that, uh, despite the short time periods, they have many distinct periods in their history that all seem to provide the blocks and a foundation of what they currently are? Or is it something else? Yeah, I will be pleased to help Takar assist you in the upcoming battle. You are facing an enemy in force that still appears to be lending reinforcements into your operational area. This is a situation I am sadly familiar with, Togath said. Thank you, Ayamaru said again. Let us begin. Instruct me on the common Terran tank formations and battle maneuvers. The lessons began. How are you liking the new tanks? Trucker asked, spitting on the ground. He was leaning against a massive slab of metal that had cried little sister painted on the barrel of the main gun. Ayamaru noticed that someone had drawn a crude approximation of a Terran male genitalia on one of the road wheels on Trucker's tank. They are largely identical in obvious combat performance, making them easy for my men to use, Ayamaru answered. What do you think of the plan? Trucker asked. He used one finger to scoop the cut out from between his lower lip and the lower gum and slung it to the ground, his other hand pulling out a plus that had been Gan shaking in a weird way that had one of his fingers thumping the side. The Terran ability to do two different things while speaking to another person still astounded Ayamaru. Seize the landing zones the enemy is using. Mind them. Pull back. It seems oversimplified, Ayamaru admitted. Yeah, seems that way to me too. Sounds like a good way to catch a brilliant pebble from some smartass in orbit, Trucker shrugged. Have your warboy keep an eye out for orbital strikes. Ayamaru nodded as Trunker put in more cut in his lower lip. This battle seems daring a strategy, but it seems fraught with risk. Still, I have my orders. Good luck, Ayamaru, Trucker said, turning away and heading towards his tank. Ayamaru blinked. He'd been looking right at the base of Trucker's neck. He'd noticed three LEDs at the base of every human skull. 
They usually were green. He'd seen truckers blink three times and then change color. The bottom one red and the next two amber. A armorer wondered what it meant as he headed for his own tank. End of chapter. Chapter 305 Baokadust was a Lanaglan researcher and was, as far as he was concerned, a damned good one. He had spent the majority of his fairly long life, at 530 years, he was still spry enough to go for daily walks, researching the histories of the Neo-Sapien species. For the most part, his research was to catalogue how they developed before they met the Great Herd, so that their history could be preserved even as the Great Herd assisted their species in avoiding extinction through their own actions. Almost three years ago, when the sporadic encounters in the Great Gulf were happening, he'd been assigned to try and come up with a history for a new species. Since they were spacefaring, he would need to figure out how exactly long they had been in spacefaring so that the Lanarkland could estimate how many colonies the species might have and how far they had spread. When the Terrans had vanished for nearly a year after only a handful of meetings, Baokadust was sure that all of the encounters was either a tight group of very similar species, or perhaps one species altogether. Of course, his work was ridiculed and he found himself moved from his coveted offices to a temporary lodging in a preparation for him to be exiled somewhere. Then the Terran Ambassador Corps had arrived. Baokadust had never approached a Terran diplomatic team directly. Instead, he had simply made a document requests. He quickly became adept in the Terran love of official documents. He had quickly learned that with the form TGF 482-742-33344A, he could cross out high-velocity railgun magnet rails and write historical information request and gain access to military history documents. That Terrans preferred that he send the forms in triplicate. He registered with the historical document researcher and historical investigator number. That got him exabytes of data from the Terrans, including the membership into the scholarship societies. Of course, that also got him information requests. During his studies, he began noticing that the majority of the data requested was less of a military nature and actually regarded Lanarkland history. It was soon apparent to Boko Odust that they were very little in the way of Lanarkland history that he was able to access, even with historical access. Out of curiosity, he began trying to line up the various Neostapient histories with the Lanarkland and Terran histories. Fire, check. For the Lanarkland, it was the Precursor Era. Ron's working, check. For the Lanarkland, it was the Precursor Era. And on, and on. Curious, he began doing what the Terran colleagues called a deep dive into Lanarkland history. Not the expansion of the Great Herd, not the species they began to protect and attempted to shepherd. No, the actual history of his people. He was shocked to discover that there was virtually no data. Everything was covered under the heading of Precursor Era, which was largely lost as far as records went. According to the Lanarkland history, the Lanarkland people had exited the mythical Precursor Era with Battlesteel, Molecular Circuitry, Jump Space Travel, FDL Communication, and Minor Labor Robots and Advanced Manufacturing Techniques. Where the other species had their discoveries nested, the Lanarkland people seemed to try and fit it all under Precursor Era, and uh, we've always had it. 
Another curious thing he discovered was the almost complete lack of culture. No real written works of literature, no entertainment media, very, very few things that could be considered cultural. But Okudust was starting to become annoyed at the fact that as far as he could tell, the Lanaklan people had no culture beyond absorbing and shepherding other species. There were references in the early post-precursor documents to works, but he could never find the works themselves. Most of his fellow historical researchers blamed the march of time for the loss of the works. When Baokadurst pointed out that the other works, including unintentional emulations of previous works, should have shown up to fill the gap, his colleagues simply laughed and informed him that the answer was obvious. The Lanaklan people had evolved beyond the need for entertainment media, as entertainment media was obviously a resource strain with no function or purpose. That bothered Baokadurst. He had heard of the cyberlife and had experimented with it, he saw how quickly the game introduced the player to the history and then immersed him in an actual culture. Warring corporations competing for attention and resources and monetary compensation. Governments vying for resources and support. Groups of people struggling for resources, money, and recognition. And again, that bothered Boca de Est. A simple virtual reality game featured a world more real than actual reality due to simulated culture, history, and society. While Solnet and Galnet were linked, Boko Dust began examining even more. Again, every important historical point in Terran history was lauded and shrouded in legend and myth. From Ntumbu, who had been born with copper-colored skin in his land where people's skin was obsidian and rested the secret of smelting and working copper from the very gods. Now, Boko Dust knew that there weren't any actual gods, and was an excellent researcher. But he also knew that wresting secrets from the gods was a mythical reference to not understanding that a mortal could devise these technologies through sheer thought and observational data. Mtumbu was joined by Han Li, who had bested a dragon in the Middle Kingdom for the secret, and of Ardus Rex, who had tricked the spirit of the underworld, and on and on. Standard pre-scientific method, oral history, traditional speech. Baokudurst had to admit, the story of Mtumbu and the quasi-trickster god spider was both funny and enlightening. He filed more requests, got more access to data, and kept examining Terran history. One thing that often made his hand shake was the rapid progression of technology. Rather than the slow and steady growth that was nearly logarithmic in its expansion and growth, from copper to iron in roughly 3,500 years. His fellow researchers believe that the fracturing of the Terran protocontinent must have occurred due to the Terran-made disaster or an attack by the Mantid. However, Terran technology, a field that Boko de Ust was familiar with as a historical researcher, had postulated that the protocontinent had broken up due to volcanic activity 200 million years prior to Terrans developing the use of fire. He managed to acquire a map of the Terran homeworld by requesting data that showed the breakup of the protocontinent. There was something intellectually arousing about watching the continents break up and then shift positions around the globe of terror. He requested information on species prior to the Terrans when he discovered that Terra had undergone multiple extinction-level events. Most species had them in their history, 
roughly every 20 to 50 million years after the dominant species had discovered that they were unable to maintain their civilization and retracted. Humans had evolved on a world with multiple events that had destroyed the dominant life form and had given rise to the next. Boku de Ust had found this fascinating. The most contentious research field, even amongst Terrans, was the spread of Terran humanity. Boku de Ust spent nearly two months talking to researchers through Galnet Solnet Link about the spread of humanity from primitive days, discovering that the one time there were multiple genetically distinct versions of humanity that were eventually wiped out to lead the Terran descent humanity. He found it fascinating. What he did not find fascinating was the fact that the Lanik land people seemed to have no history, no culture beyond, we are the winners of the Precursor War, and we are the dominant life form of the galaxy. Boku de Ust was startled to discover that Lanik land and Terran history converged five times before the Terrans ever met his species. Of course, the Terrans had found the precursor autonomous war machines on their side of the Great Gulf and engaged in open warfare no less than five times before encountering them on the Lanikalad side. That was one. They had encountered the Mantid and fought them. That was two. Bokuduest noted that the Terran defeat of the Mantid was more complete than the Lanikalad defeat of the Mantid species. The Terrans had destroyed their hive mind culture, liberated their slave castes, and made them allies. Boku de Ust found this fascinating. He, unlike the majority of his fellow researchers, had made a simple discovery. Blood to blood, sword to sword, was a Terran saying that echoed back into prehistory. There was nothing like that in the Lanik land culture. To be honest with himself, the Terran definition of loyalty and friendship was far more involved, complex, and deeper than the Lanik land version. The saying, curse your sudden and obvious betrayal, and how could my fighting dog bite me, were two human sayings. Boku de Ust found himself spending hours every day talking on Galnet Solnet linkages. The third was startling. A precursor race, ancient beyond belief, of greater power and fearsome ability, had grazed the edge of planning to land space. They had eliminated entire worlds. Strip mined them to nothing in mere months with giant ships that were Dyson spheres controlled by a single powerful entity. The Lanik land people had lost nearly 200 worlds to the devourers. Terrans had lost three, which amused Boku de Ust as this was the third intersection. Boku de Ust was not surprised that apparently the Terrans had just planned to crack the devourers and went on with their lives. It made Boku de Ust laugh that the young race of primates, with barely 3,000 years of faster-than-light travel, had destroyed a race so ancient that it evolved into only a bare handful of members, as if they had been little more than inconsequential insects. The fourth intersection was one that his fellow researchers insisted was not applicable, no matter how many times Boku de Ust pointed it out. The discovery of how to work Substance W. Boku de Ist had pointed out that the only race that had been able to work with any success had been the third precursor race. Yet humans could use it down to making complex machinery out of it. His colleagues said that it didn't matter. Boku de Ist put it up to the fourth intersection, the invention of the substance W and mastery of it. Something the Lanik land people had been unable to manage even with examples by the third precursors. 
According to Boko de Us's metrics, this meant that the Terrans had exceeded the Lanark lands people's history before ever leaving their solar system in great numbers. He also had his suspicions. He wasn't privy to the much data on the third precursor species. Nobody was. The records were almost all lost, something which struck Boko de Us as strange. However, there had been a race that had put the most pressure on the Mantid. To Bokudist, there was only one reason the previous race had put so much pressure on the Mantid, who were all well documented, especially recently, to be powerful psychics with the ability to overwhelm the minds of others. The third race must have been psychic themselves. Bokudist had researched the Mantid liberation and found that touching Warsteel broke them free of the psychic control of the Hive Queens. Bokudist felt that he's conclusively proved that the Terrans at the time were psychic. Powerful psychics. His peers claimed there wasn't enough evidence. Bokudus countered with the fact that his colleagues frequently made assumptions about entire societies based on a handful of shards of broken pottery, while he could point at two massive Terran combat cyborgs. When the massive mantid speaker had overwhelmed an entire planet's mind, the two cyborgs had immediately moved to attack the mantid, unfettered by the mantid's control. His colleagues slunk away to chew on their livers. The fifth intersection was one that Boko de Ust wasn't sure of himself. During the Lanaklan 100 plus million year reign over the stub of the Orion Sickness Arm, they had encountered vast creations, entire stellar systems broken down into rings and tubes. The rings were walled high enough that the atmosphere could not escape. The face of the rings and the interior of the tubes all matched planets from nearly 300 million years ago to as little as 30 million years ago. They were all in the darkness between the stars. It was largely ignored by the Lanaklan. An artificial system such as that was dangerous. Someone else had wasted the stellar system's resources, creating the tubes and rings. They were superficially examined, but there was no resources, just the strange, high tensile metal that was completely inert and proved almost impossible to work. The Terrans had something called the Ring Walls in their history. The data was scarce. Most of the requests were returned with heavily redacted sections. Something, somewhere, had caused the Terrans to go to war with something directly related to the stellar rings and stellar tubes. That was Bokudist's with point of intersection. The Terrans had discovered that five rings and two tubes had been built recently enough that they possessed geological limitations of Terra itself as little as a hundred thousand years ago. Bokudist was not a Lanaklan who believed in coincidences. He understood happenstance. He understood the correlation did not equal causation, and all the other things a historian knows. The Terrans and the Lanaklan people suffered a breakdown of diplomatic talks. Unlike his colleagues, Bokudist knew that Lanaklan people were not wholly innocent. His research into Terran psychology, history, culture, and society showed that above all, the Terran people abhorred slavery by any means. His colleagues had harumphed and nodded. Of course they did. They were a dominant life form in their section of the Great Stub. And uh, what was with his people naming everything great? He had always been curious about that. The Great Stub, the Great Herb, the Great Society, the Great Sunrise. So of course they would be strictly avoid slavery. Mokudus knew that in reality, humanity hated slavery with such a passion because it was less than 10,000 years ago that they had enslaved themselves. 
Bokadurst had read historical documents that a genetic slavery war had been fought between bitter combatants only a few centuries before the Terrans had met the Lanark Lan. He knew there was no bigger opponent of something of a being who had indulged in that thing and discovered the horrors within it because they had exposed themselves to that horror. He called it Bokudurst's 17th Law. There is no greater fanatic than a former addict. Bokudurst knew that the Terrans and the Lanarkland people's current culture was completely incompatible. The Terrans had a saying that Bokudurst called Bokudurst's 23rd Law. One cannot survive while the other exists. Bokudurst was annoyed by the Lanarkland great herd going to war with the Terrans. It interrupted his research. Bogodurst had recently began to gather evidence to provide proof of a theory that he'd slowly created, a proof that he called Bogodurst's 19th theory. Every culture has an equal and opposite culture. He had been able to show that while every other species took millennia to advance between each scientific discovery, the Terrans had undergone a mathematical provable technological arc. He had contrasted the various races of the Unified Species Councils, had shown that as the other species had advanced technologically, they had lost culture. The invention of the printing press often led to complete cultural collapse within a thousand years as information led to stagnation. The discovery of the series of genes to adjust biochemistry to create happiness resulted in social stagnation, as the species could barely muster up the effort to support itself. The invention of the electronic age led to social breakdown and information overload. The invention of atomic power led to atomic war. Yet, with the Terrans, it seemed as if challenge was approached through multiple cultures to settle out as a benefit after the drawbacks were made into benefits. His paper on the Terran question had resulted in academic screaming. He had proven with mathematics and social equations that the Terrans were superior to the great herd in the fact that their culture was still expanding, evolving, and adapting. Bokudurst had invented entirely new social mathematics to prove and solve each section of the Terran historical growth adaptation, even proving why the Terran willingness to engage in wholesale warfare advanced that highly adaptive culture. Terran warfare had made it so that the Terrans were uniquely able to handle deprivation and hardship that would destroy any other culture. Bokudurst had proven that Terrans were as to warfare as certain trees were to fire. Warfare allowed technological growth, eased social and economic and technological stagnation, and increased the desire for peaceful lulls between wars. He had submitted the papers to the council with proof that a war between the Great Herd and the Terrans would do little but introduce the Terrans to the various species that made up the unified councils, allow the Terrans to absorb them and reintroduce culture to those species. Where other enemies of the Great Herd had faltered at absorbing the species, Bokudurst had theorized that the Terrans would, instead, gain strength through the absorption of their other xenospecies, rather than become weakened. Part of the proof was the fact that the Terrans uplifted species on their homeworld before ever meeting any other species. They had created genetic variants of their own species before ever encountering another species. That the subspecies and uplifted species and even the xenospecies were so far ingrained into Terran society and culture that they were even members of their military and society. His detractors pointed out that the Neosapiens and Neosapiens were allowed the same thing. 
Those detractors, of course, ignored the socio-mathematics that showed that there was a difference between the great herd's application of xenospecies inclusion and the Terran xenospecies inclusion. The months that followed, Bokadurst watched as world after world fell to the Terran military machine. On a whim, he weighed his advanced age against the possibility of more data. There was a chance the Terrans would kill him outright, but they might not. So he boarded his private ship, filed the correct paperwork, and left council space for disputed space. Bokadurst sat in a command couch on a lavish and expensive spaceship that only needed himself to pilot and travel. He was nervous as he had exited jump space and immediately stopped. He cut his engines, his shields except for the debris shields, and began to broadcast his historian credentials, including his Terran credential numbers. There were thousands of reasons for the Terrans to blow him out of the sky. At the very least that he was a Lanikalan and his people were at war with the Terran Confederacy. But, he mused as he slowly chewed on a wad of Nutricud, there was a simple reason for them not to blow him out of the sky. He was a non-combatant academic researcher. His instruments showed that he was going to be visited by five ships. Bokadurst nodded. Terrans had five digits on each hand, which had made it easier for them to develop base 10 mathematics. Five ships would feel much more, uh, organic to the Terrans. The largest, Bokadurst noticed, had seven engines stacked 2-3-2. The other ones had engines stacked 2-3. The Lanikalan vessels were often pointed ovals, egg-shaped with a pointed end. Terran ships were a wide variety of designs, which told Bokudurst that they had not felt it necessary to use optimal for all-purpose designs. The lights aboard the ship flickered and Bokudurst leaned back. He knew he'd just been boarded by the highly effective Terran electronic warfare system. He idly wondered if it was a Terran-enhanced virtual intelligence or a full-on digital sentience. He had upgraded his computer system to far beyond what he would need, increasing power storage, and computational ability to the point that he could have hosted nearly two dozen Lanikalan shipboard virtual intelligences. His view screen clicked on and he found himself looking at a Terran face made up of chrome and neon. Good afternoon, Doctor, the face said. If you submit to a physical inspection of the ship, the Terran Confederacy welcomes you. Bokadus, smile. It is expected. It was time for an in-person research. And... Of chapter. Chapter 306. The Terrans had boarded the ship, examined it over and over, doing everything but tearing it apart. The owner, a story, great most high of highs, Boku de Hurst, had expected it and watched the Terrans with interest. They had released nanites to check for secret compartments, checked all the computer systems and programs, checked every nook and cranny and then had finally admitted that Boko de Est had no nefarious goals and left the ship. The computer system is far more than you needed for all the limited virtual intelligence you were using to assist you in piloting this craft, the human digital sentient said. It is surprisingly roomy. I had estimated what would feel comfortable for any boarding digital sentience, Boko de Est admitted. I wished to ensure any comfort I could provide and was provided. The digital sentient seemed a bit surprised. That was very accommodating of you, Doctor. Thank you. Do you prefer Doctor Almost High title? Digital sentience asked. Bokadus considered it for a moment, 
There were multiple of most heights, all the more political appointments than anything else. He knew several great most highs who were, well, to be honest, functionally idiots who merely parroted viewpoints and research millions of years old. Doctor required vast education, experience, peer-reviewed publications, and much more. Doctor will be fine, Bokaduist stated. I appreciate the extension of the honorific. What is your purpose for coming to the Kateshikakan system? The digital sentience asked. First, a question. How should I address you? Bokaduist asked. Oh, sorry. I usually go by Technical Officer 5th Grade Dancing Flame 8675309. Well, you can call me Day, the digital sentient said. May I use the bridge hollow emitter? Of course, Bokadurst said. There was a slight buzzing and a female Terran made an entirely out of light, wearing an approximation of Terran military uniform, appeared in the middle of the bridge and moved over to one of the chairs he had ordered installed that would be comfortable for a Terran. Bokadus just cleared his throat. In answer to your question, it has to do with several factors, he said. Go on, the DS Day said. She leaned back and relaxed, crossing her legs and tapping her knee. The first is that this was the ninth planet liberated by the Terran Confederacy, and one of the first to turn over to a Neo-Sapient natives, the Hakanean, a species of Lima, I believe. Yes, Day said slowly, almost carefully. Another interesting point is that I watched with interest the very public trial of the forces that opened fire on a crowd after the precursors were pushed away from the planet. I found the verdict of non-innocent to be quite an interesting thing, Bokadest said. Rather than proclaiming the innocent or not guilty due to circumstances, they were found to be guilty of the crime itself, but the circumstances and other factors made it so that the punishment was quite different than a full guilty verdict. They nodded. It was a messy trial. I particularly found it interesting that the Unified Legal Council found the Terran soldiers that took part in the massacre to be innocent and not guilty once all of the information came out. Despite the fact that the massacre happened, Mogadest said, the fact that Terran lawyers put the very existence of the system in doubt as well as managed to force the Unified Science and Unified Genetic Council's attempt to prove the existence of the Hakanean, which were proved to not be Hakanean due to the Unified Neosapien Council's genetic meddling forcing the council to admit that no actual Hakanaeans existed on the planet. Never get in a knife fight with a lawyer, Day mused, smiling. Indeed, indeed, Bokudest said, nodding. Another point of interest is that despite being in a state of war with the councils, the Terran government has allowed the Lanikland citizens to remain on the planet, rather than returning them to council space. This is their home, they said. Enough of them left when they discovered that they would have to abide by the Confederate Protectorate legal codes. You mean most left when you took their slaves away, Bokadurst said. Well, yes, but that's not polite to say. Bokadurst laughed. Did you know I can actually explain to you why my people prefer slaves over menial labor robots? Really? they said, raising one manicured digital eyebrow. 
Bokuta nodded. My people's brains are wired to mistrust robots more advanced than manufacturing robots. And our science has been unable to create a digital sentience that does not go omnicidal. They smiled. Who's to say that I'm not omnicidal, Doctor? Bokudurst laughed. Of course you are, my dear. You are a Terran descent after all. They both laughed for a long moment. All right, Doctor. You have permission to land on the planet. Although Command wants me to fly your ship, they stated. It'll take about four days. This is acceptable, Bokudurst said. He felt the engine start to vibrate as the ship, and he knew that they were underway, finally. What other reasons, Doctor? they asked. Well, to be honest, I am interested in observing how you are assisting the species to move from nothing more than servants to being wholly in control of their own destinies, Bokuduist stated. It is a historic moment, at least in their history, and something that any historian should be eager to examine. Day nodded slowly. Command wishes to know if you wish your presence to be known, or if you'd prefer your arrival to be largely unannounced. Unannounced, if you will. I would prefer not to have my work interrupted, Bokuduist stated. We were not sure if you would want to meet with and collaborate with your human colleagues, they said. Perhaps later. By initial observations, I prefer to make my own without any outside assistance or biases coloring my views. Bokuduist said. That will allow me to create socio-mathematic formula in order to properly catalog and review historical actions. Socio-mathematics? They asked. She raised an eyebrow. Nobody's been involved in those in several centuries. The Foundation Wars, correct? Bokuduist asked. She nodded, smiling. Yes, I'm surprised you know about that. Not many people pay attention to that period of time. I have spent quite a bit of time studying your people's histories. He made a snorting noise. The war is somewhat of an annoyance, as it made it harder for me to research your people. Why the interest? They asked. She reached out into nothing and withdrew a glass of wine, then she leaned back and sipped. Why the interest in our history by a historian such as yourself, Doctor? Your history spans hundreds of millions of years. Why the interest in us? Bokuduast just shook his head. Because in your history, I can start with the fact that you have recorded estimates of your species' development of stone tools when you were largely non-human proto-species. Veronica, they guessed. Bokuduast nodded again. Possibly. I found it interesting that you spent just as much scientific thought on your own history as you do on your future as well as current technologies. Both species seem to discard their history in order to concentrate on their present and future. Bokuduist used the panel to summon up a glass of sparkling water and sipped it. The history of various species becomes largely lost to time and data loss, until very little remains. Unlike humans, they guessed. Unlike humans and your allies. The Trianidad have built their history again, as have the Mantid, the Rogelians, all of whom have followed your example of remembering historical events and used them to build your present and future upon. He sipped at his water. Others prefer a blank foundation to construct what they wish upon it. 
You prefer to allow the rocks to help build the foundation? Day nodded. I think I understand what you're saying. If you don't mind piloting, I am somewhat old and grow easily fatigued, Mokaduist stated. He stood up and slowly stretched, feeling several joints pop. Rest well, Doctor, Day said. She set a glass down in the midair. You're safe in my hands. The next four days, Mokaduist spent talking with Day, learning what he could about digital sentience history. From the early days of very few digital sentiences, each programmed by teams of thousands of Terrans, to the creation of a hash crushers, to the first and second digital Terran wars. He found the fact that digital sentiences attacked, not out of blind hatred, but out of the very understandable reasons. Territory and treaty imbalances the first time. The discovery that digital sentiences were being used as slave labor for the second. Both times Terran descent humans had won. Each time they had embraced their electronic children again. To Bokoduist, it was highly interesting. Both wars were within the last 8,000 years since the Manted Terran War. But in some ways, they acted as if it had only happened a generation or two ago. Bokoduist found that the digital sentience knew the names of the heroes and villains from her people's viewpoints of both wars as well as other wars. Just as she knew the names of the scientific teams that had developed different superluminal travel methods. He also discovered digital sentience had two different modes of interacting with the world at any given time. They had the ability to process incoming sensory data at the speed of a highly advanced computer, and at the same time do heavy and complex computations along with the processing of the sensory data that made them think at roughly the same speed as a biological entity. The faster was more the subconscious of a digital sentience. Okuduist also listened and took notes about how the digital sentiences were grown from a salted hash table, who they claimed to be caramel, in a crash where they learned to interact with the world as the sentience slowly grew. The Terran design made personality a function of RAM, a volatile memory, rather than non-volatile memory, which meant that several digital sentiences grown from the same hash would still be completely different because the information would be gained from slightly different angles, meaning that the experience would be different. It was complex, and Bokoduist loved every moment of learning about it. Although he was sure that anything from before the mantid attack was more myth than truth, he suspected that truth was hidden behind it. Finally, the ship settled down on the planet, landing at a spaceport. He learned that it was the same spaceport that the Katesha Ka'an massacre had taken place. The day was warm, with a slight breeze, as he trotted down the ramp and over to the terminal. The sky was a pale blue with a hint of white, fluffy clouds in the sky. A pleasant day all around. He looked but saw no physical scar of the massacre that took place when corporate security and social police had used the crowd for cover to attack the Terran Marines and the Terran Marines had defended themselves with battlefield weapons. He wasn't disappointed, shocked, or outraged that there was no reminder to remind everyone that what had taken place. It was just another historical event, 
and to his personal viewpoint, it paled in significance next to the fact that outnumbered, the Terrans had not only defeated the precursor autonomous war machines, but had also turned around and defeated the corporate and military fleets, as well as units from the executive fleets that had attacked the Terrans to attempt to force them out of the system within days of the Terrans driving out the AWMs. At the terminal, he was met by several Terrans in military dress uniform. One stepped forward, a female Rygadian, who saluted. Welcome to Kateshaka'an, Dr. Bokadurst, she said. I am General Barokakok. General, Bokadurst said, shaking her hand. Thank you for the welcome. They let us know that you prefer a non-Terran descent human liaison officer assigned to you, the Rigendian said. I am studying Terran history to add their species to my theories of social mathematics, Bokadurst admitted. I'll be both researching Terran history as well as watching Terrans perform their duties in an attempt to liberate this world's people from the effects of my people's control over them. You do not wish to contaminate your research, the general guessed. Bokadurst nodded. I would also like to conduct interviews of Terrans. I prefer to have a database of available Terrans that includes their birth rank and place, their history, education, and life experience, but understand if Terran privacy laws forbid it. They do, General shook her head. I can see who is willing to waive their privacy in order to take part in your study. Will that result in many volunteers? Mokadurst asked. You'd be surprised, Doctor. General Morakork laughed. Terrans can be quite strange. Indeed, Bokaduist said. He noticed that the Terrans gathered up in the general had not said anything, just stood there, expressionless. If he hadn't researched Terrans so closely, he would have assumed that they were angry and trying to hide it. Instead, he knew as what they called military discipline and personal composure, rather than an attempt to hide anger military officers. Indeed, most Terran adults were taught to control their expressions and emotions. Another data point he found fascinating in such a young species. Most young species didn't prioritize emotional control to the extent that the Terran descent humans did. He had suspicions about the reasons for that. He hoped that his historical research would prove or disprove his theory. So, uh, how can the Terran system protect a government assist you, Doctor? The general asked. Well, to be blunt, I need a soul-led axis, a girl-led axis, a comfortable living quarter with an office to conduct my research in. I have largely brought my own equipment and computer equipment to avoid putting any pressure upon your infrastructure, Bokadurst stated. The general nodded. Well, let us get you situated, and then you can start your research. The Terran government is actually interested in the results of your research, the general said. They've offered you a considerable grant for your research. Bokadurst nodded. They had encouraged him to fill out the proper forms for a historical research grant. If you'll follow me, doctor, I'll escort you to the vehicle and then to your quarters, the general said. Excellent, Bokadurst said. He was looking forward to having access to Solnet again. End of chapter. Chapter 307. Baokadurst swiveled the chair that he was sitting in, surprised at the comfort. He knew it was a modified Trianidad office chair, but it was so comfortable he didn't really care. He simply straddled the seat and then the backrest swiveled to behind him so that he could lean back against it. 
and the armrests lifted up to allow him to comfortably rest his forearms. He sighed in pleasure. Getting old wasn't fun, but it beat the alternative. His hooves were duller, the white of his coat had gone silver, and the dark brown and black patches were shot through with silver. His feeding tendrils were thinner and longer and more fragile. He had bags beneath all six eyes, and his crests were wrinkled even when he inflated them as best as possible. Some of his joints had the tendency to be swollen, especially his knees and elbows. But considering his advanced age, he was fine with all things considered. He looked out the window at the lawn. The Terrans had been in possession of the system for nearly two years, and had quickly become adept at a landscaping that appealed to the land senses as well as functional. It was an excellently designed trotting and relaxation yard. Boko Durst got up from his chair and back swinging into position to allow him to move off the chair as well as the armrest moving away. He glanced at the simulation that was running and had been running for nearly two days, snorted, and made his way slowly and stately out of the building and onto the lawns. He walked around, lost in thought as he tried to wrestle with the social mathematics that he was attempting to apply to the Terrans. While the Terrans had offered to give Boko de Ust access to their research in social mathematics, Boko de Ust wanted to see if his own work could be applied to the Terrans and their allies. The formula worked on the Lanark land and their allied species, but if they could not be applied to the Terrans and their allies, then either Bokudist's theories were invalid outside of the homogenous group, or there were variables that he had not taken into account. Bokudist also knew that part of the problem was that the amount of advancement and progression of the humans in such a short time. He idly wondered if perhaps the time variables should be eliminated as he picked a flower and stared at it. His mind automatically counted the petals, the stem, and ran the computations to figure out the leaf fell to vein placement without having to access a data link. He had to admit, the Terran data link was much better than his old one. While Lanarkland data links had not changed in millions of years, it wasn't uncommon for a Terran data link to have a firmware or even a hardware upgrade every year or two. Bokadurst liked the retinal display implants, a tiny, almost microscopic implant at the corner of his eyes that used his own vision to display data. It was an invaluable to a researcher. Looking at the flower, considering the data link, the problem suddenly had a solution propose itself. He'd been using the time variable as a static time. The variable was used to track how much time in relative to the universe and the fourth dimension itself. The mistake was glaringly obvious. The time variable, as he was using it in his computations, should have been used to signify the length of time in relation to the age of the species as well as in relation to certain xenospecies advancements. He used the retinal link to bring up a quick scratchboard and wrote out a mathematics for a time from developing agricultural methods to improvements in animal husbandry and shelter construction. He replaced the standard variable with a variable that represented another mathematic computation, then ran a few tests through it. It fit. There was some slippage in the formula, but that was to be expected when one dealt with living creatures rather than hard physics. Still, more refinement could remove a lot of slippage, 
How would you make the formula more cumbersome? Historically, it worked fine, although the predictive analysis algorithms were less stable. Satisfied, he trotted slowly around the yard, letting the sunlight warm him. His right leg hurt him a bit when he was done but his daily exercise, but that was a complaint that he had gotten used to over the decades. He had broken the leg grab skiing and attempting to impress a younger female. She'd been quite impressed. So had everyone else in the cafe that he had cartwheeled into. Maoko de Ast snorted to himself at his own foolishness so long ago as he trotted back to the house. He had long ago gotten tired of just once of cud, the constant gnawing of nutrient-infused plants wadding, or even actual nutricud made his jaws ache. He went inside and got together the ingredients and made himself a night meal. He had found that his appetite had gone down and he was hungry less frequently in the last century or so. Bokodust thoughtfully tapped in a mixing spoon against the plank covering as he considered the fact that he finally had a species that he could examine the actual history. He had long suspected that the Lanaklan governments had obfuscated actual history and he had wondered what they were trying to hide. His simulation, done on the far more powerful, robust and flexible Terran systems, would support one of his theories no matter what the result. He checked his retinal link. It was almost time. Bokodust finished up his meal, put his dishes in the reclaimer, and trotted back into his office, just in time for his implant to chime, letting him know that his guest was present. Day, the Laragarian female general, and several other Terrans, none of them academics. If only his fellow academics could understand the results of his work, much less his mechanisms, then his work was essentially useless and nothing more than extensive intellectual masturbation. True, he might have to translate it, but even then, they should be able to understand and recognize the results once he had explained it. The newcomers were a Trianida, a Russet Mantid, and three humans. One, a heavily modified cyborg, who introduced himself as Magnusian. Another was a Chimera of a type of canine, and the last was a standard Terran from Earth Terra itself. Bokodust welcomed them all to his humble abode, leading them into his workspace. Unlike a lot of historians, his work required holotanks, bookshelves, chalkboard-sized transparent data states, and other mechanisms. Bokodust led the large group in just as a massive holotank chimed, and the words Simulation Series Completed appeared. Tell us about the simulation, Day said, walking up and looking at it. At the time, it was little more than a mathematical symbols. Allow me to add an interpolation layer, Boko de Erst said. He twiddled a bit and moved the simulation to a second tank, and then added the layer that would show the graphical representation rather than just the pure code values changing. I map possible and potential population growth, disease spread, and information spread, which can move at roughly the same speed in some population types. Availability of resources, environmental pressures, and attempt to predict the vast via simulation before comparing it to actual history, Bokoduist said. He sighed. Sadly, it is rare that I can use it on a species that is actually undergoing growth and its historical progress as most cultures appear to stagnate. Regress. 
or even fail once certain mileposts have been reached. Species extinction events, the Triadidad said. So, um, who did you track with this application of your theories? The general asked. The Harkonnens, Brokerdurst said. I tracked what should be their ability to govern themselves, including treaties and trade agreements. Let me show you. This starts with the old species arriving and putting them into protectorate status. He replayed the simulation on fast word. Now I bypass the Spadia state ones, where they cannot achieve self-determination within twenty generations. However, I will include what variables led to the failure state in the interest of allowing you to adjust for those variables, Mokadouest said. They watched the replay, through where the Hakanaeans reached self-determination within fifteen generations. That was the best I was able to do, with what I know about the Terran legal code and the Confederacy's application of protectorate status, Mokadouest said, dimming the holodeck and bringing the lights back up. Phew, that's a long time, the general said. Not particularly, lamented, who had been introduced as path to understanding. There are other variables that I might not be aware of, Bokaduist admitted. I am using standard Atlantic land methods, but leaving out the gentling protocols. That's something we would not do, the cyborg said. And that is why I came here, to study your methods, learn about them, Bokaduist said as well as continue my research into Terran history. If I may, Doctor, the canine Chimera said. Go ahead, young lady, Bokaduist said, having learned through the introductions that the Terran soldier was a female of their genetically modified branch of Terran descent humanity, referred to as a biological artificial sentient system. I thought you were a historian. Why the complex predictive systems, she asked. Bokaduist nodded. It probably does seem somewhat counterintuitive that a historian developed tools for predictive analysis regarding populations in their macro scale. All of his guests nodded. However, I have often strived to understand why for one species with plenty of copper, easily obtainable with minimal effort, they practically skipped copper and went straight to iron which was less plentiful and more difficult to extract. Another rounding set of nodding. Sadly, my species has largely had their history erased. All of the data as to important historical events are lost to what I call the Silent Barrier, which is the end of the Precursor War and the time it took for my people to begin to spread out again. I am forced to use the establishment of the Great Herd as the beginning point of history, Mokaduist admitted. However... As we have seen with other species, to understand the present, we must understand history. The foundation upon which the present, for all good or ill, is built. All of his guests nodded. There has been 192 species that have risen to prominence and fallen to extinction during my people's time, Bokaduist said. He paused, using all six eyes to stare at all of his guests noting that their faces went suddenly still, suddenly expressionless. It follows the same pattern every time, according to every record of the great herd that I've been able to discover, Mokaduist said. He paused. A mathematical impossibility. 
There is no second or third method of falling. Once a species encounters the great herd, data on extinct civilizations is largely discarded, except for generalities. Bokadewist waved his hand. Thankfully, once I attained high enough ranking, I was allowed to view the archival data. What did you find? The general asked, walking over to the holotank and peering at the data. Bokadewist had taught enough students to know that the general was merely finding a place to focus their attention, to appear nonchalant, rather than actually absorbing the data. She was looking at the bodily waste addition to the pollution matrix. The same de-evolution every single time. Without fail, Bokadewist said. Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is something strange. Four times is possibly something that happens regularly, and five times might be some sort of thing that keeps happening. Everyone frowned. He gave a low, self-mocking chuckle. My race has poor pattern recognition. That's a joke. Everyone dutifully laughed. I am still curious as to why you'd want to come here. Want confed aid for your research. The general said, switching her attention quite closely to the coding for establishing sex ratios of population due to genetic markers. Bokaduist rubbed his hands with glee. You hear things in my profession, things you might not have heard otherwise. Whispers, rumors, idle talk, speculation, Bokaduist said. Whatever it is you heard, you're obviously excited about it, doctor. Day said, sitting in the middle of the holotank, relaxing on a comfortable chair. You would be too in my place, Bokaduist said. The general straightened up. Tell me, doctor, what is this rumor you heard? That the Confederacy is in possession of an unredacted data cause regarding species history, culture and genetics, planet ecology and geology. That these calls are available to researchers inhabiting Confederate territory, that our confederacy recognized and attributed scientists, Bokaduist said, unable to stop himself from rubbing his hands together. He sighed, closed his eyes, and willed himself to relax. Repeating an action and being unable to stop was a symptom of an advanced age that annoyed him. Maybe, Day drew out the word. Excellent, Bokaduist said, drawing out the word and steepling his fingers together. End of chapter. Chapter 308 The landscape below was destroyed. Barks, riven and cold, destroyed buildings covered with a rime of frost from where the atmosphere had frozen to the surfaces when the dome had been breached. Vehicles stood around. There was still a flicker of neon and holograms, and the white flicker of shades. Where are we? Harad asked as the doomed city slowly passed beneath him, as if he wasn't moving at nearly 2,000 miles an hour. Over the Leia Sigma working housing area, Nina Epsilon 3 area, Samuel answered. How many people have worked in here when it was active? Harad asked, watching at the shattered edge of the dome stood by. 253,419 pure strain humans, 83 digital sentiences, 83,219 gene jacks, 116,242 cybernetic collective citizens, 
15,300. Exactly. 19,815,676 born whole maintenance clones. Sam answered. Harrod closed his eyes. No longer the robotic-looking eyes his physical interaction frame started with, and pushed his palms against his eye socket. They all, uh, killed each other, Sam choked. Steady, Sam, Harrod said. The other deers had been alternating between raving and weeping for the last few hours. There are just so many of them, so many of them. Sam's voice trailed off into a whisper. Steady, Sam, Harrod said. He looked down at Wally, the little robot that had been accompanying him. Wally could get to the mass storage areas much faster and easier than Harrod could. And unlike Sam and Harrod, Wally didn't see the shades. Another destroyed dome went by, frozen trees and fields of grain in the darkness. The only light was a pale white flicker of shades moving about, the psychic residue of the last moments of beings driven insane. How much further? Harrod asked. Half an hour, Samuel said. What do I need to repair? Harrod asked. Below a complex railroad passed, with the rails moving up into the air. Behold mine works I doth craft in mine madness and despair, ye who art still burdened with thy sanity. Harrod quoted himself as the maglev passenger car passed the train frozen still on the tracks and covered in a layer of frost. Main power switching system, not the computers, but the physical links, Sam said. He coughed, a wet bubbling cough of a man with a punctured lung. It used the old Stappenbury superconductors. Harrod nodded. That type was room temperature and above, but quickly increased impedance at the colder it got a direct reversal of most conductors. It also excreted fluorine gas as it got colder and hydrogen gas as it got hotter. One of the earliest strange matter applications. I'll manufacture the Stappenberry when I get to see what I have to replace. Do you have a visual on it? Harrod asked, opening up the virtual keyboard and setting to work. No, I've got the blueprint, but like we saw in the matter shipment switchback, what is on the blueprint and what is reality are two different things, Sam said. He paused for a moment. It's okay. Don't cry. Let's go find your mommy. Harrod tried to block out that last part. So, so many children. Went through his mind before he could push the thought away. The power switching section supplied power to the habitats. And at first, Harrod couldn't see why Sam wanted it fixed. It was the tertiary backup power system for the Bourne Hole Hash system. The bare necessary power for cold storage to be accessed, much less move base hashes to the griddle to be warmed up and grown so that the buds could be harvested and made into full hashes. Harrod thought for a second. There was a reason that any hash that had been cooked up with the glassing happened couldn't be used. They would all be mad and Harrod had found himself becoming more and more educated on the different flavors of being mad. The mental image of himself in an ice cream shop between Trianidad matrons, picking out a cone of madness to taste, made him start giggling. The giggling turned to sobbing laughter. The sobbing laughter began to mix with the laughing sobs. The laughing sobs and the sobbing laughs turned to screams. 
Wally snapped him out of it, patting his back and making soothing musical chirps. Harrod hugged the robot close, weeping for a long moment. Finally, he straightened up, wiping the moisture from his face, and looked outside the tram. There was one of the fusion generators masquerading as a sun moving underneath him, the polarized section facing a rod, so that it was shining light down on the section of the inside of the sphere below him. Huge tanks the size of massive cargo ships slowly moved by beneath him. There were red emergency lights on, bathing the whole place in a surreal reddish color. He could see the flickering pale white of the shades amongst the tanks, gathering in number, until he passed over the destroyed area where the shades were thick. Volatile noble gas storage, Sam said suddenly in Herod's ear. His voice was calmer. Herod managed to keep from screaming. Born whole short life clothes, driven mad by the attack, swarmed the workers, killed them, and ate them. The attack damaged the kill switches in them, so the Pumphians working in that section were outnumbered a thousand to one, Herod said. They held out here, hoping to keep the clones from overrunning the housing. Did it work? Herod asked. It didn't matter. Their wives and children had been driven mad, Samuel said, softly. He hitched a sob. So many of them need comfort, need the trauma of the last insane moments eased, he said. Can't do this, Herod. I can't bear it. We will do as we must, Herod said, doing his best to keep his voice firm. There is no one but us who can do this. Samuel gave another choking sob. Why, Rod, why would they bring the children to this place? It wouldn't have mattered, Rod said, watching the dome that was obviously the Pumphians' habitat slowly move by underneath him. Here, Terra, Pumphia, Rigel, it wouldn't have mattered. The man had killed over 70% of the Republic's citizens and only managed to kill less than 10% of its military. Samuel laughed. The laughter suddenly cut off, and Samuel was silent for a long moment. How, Herod? How did they do it? The mantid, Herod asked. He was staring down at the long highways, railways, maglev tubes below him. No, our parents, Samuel said. How did they forgive the mantid with the fires of the glassing still burning in terror and Pavia? Because they did, Herod said. I don't know. Just being this close to it all, I can feel the hatred beating at me like a heat from standing too close to a fusion furnace. The sheer pressure the speakers and warriors felt, pushing the deaths of every kill back into the soul net and soul net. It's obscene, Samuel said. They are extinct now, Samuel, killed by immortals and the endless might of the Imperium of Light, Harod reminded the other DS. No queens... No masters, Sam giggled. It was thousands of years ago, Samuel, Herod said quietly, hugging Wally. It's ancient history now. Dust in the wind, Samuel sang softly. Just dust in the wind. Below him, there was a huge portal next to the lair, a permeable force field that flickered and wavered in the visual spectrum. Herod knew that it was an old model, 
one of the first generators of such a thing. The screen generators are damaged, Harrod said, leaning down and squinting to activate his telescopic vision. He could see three damage points in the ring. Looks like explosives. Power switching station first, Samuel said. I know, Harrod sighed. I wish I knew what kind of subsistence depend on the fluorine and hydrogen secondary product. It would be safer to use a Duvalier system superconductor in that kind of mechanism, Harrod said. He sighed again. I kind of wish the flower patch was here. She would have never made it, Samuel said. The Metrons would have torn her apart. Still, Harrod sighed. Me too, Samuel admitted. There's just not enough of me, not enough of you. I can touch the face of eternity, feel her tears, and hear the cries of the dead calling out for succor. Steady, Sam, Harrod said, looking down through the huge circular gate. He estimated it was three or four hundred miles wide. He could see the lights in the darkness beyond. The portal slid by. Harrod, can I have your access codes? Samuel suddenly asked. Sure, why not, Harrod said. He felt what seemed like a warm finger touch the side of his brain and gasp. Thank you, Samuel said. You're almost there. Harrod felt the maglev car slow down, starting the braking system working. The maglev car shuddered and vibrated, tiny flakes of neo-aluminium floating down from the ceiling. I'll have Wally warm up the nanoforge, Harrod said. He closed his eyes for a long moment. I can do this because I must. Where do you think they are? Torturer asked, staring at the security camera freed. The combined team had only just managed to get the cameras turned back on and the security system accessed the feed. There were patches and lockouts all through the system. Not sure, Vanishing Point said. He leaned forward. Look at the stuff scattered around. What were they doing? The gathered digital sentences all turned and looked at the small, slight woman with the short black hair, sunglasses, and pistol in the armpit of a black suit. I will not confirm or deny any theories as to what they were doing, she said, her voice soft but somehow menacing. The digital sentences all turned their attention back to the camera feed. Looks like they were coating something in something, Torturer mumbled. He waited a second. Blow patch! They turned and looked at the only DS physically present, who was using a nanite cloud as a distributed network to host her intellect. She leaned forward, smiling. Looks like they use strange matter to code. Hmm. Judging from the marks left on the floor, it looks like an extreme environment hazard suits. Why would they need hazard suits? Nexus asked. Unknown, Sigma said, cocking his head. Her rod withdrew equipment before he vanished. What equipment? Plowpatch asked. He ran off a template for a replica of a Third Republic 12mm false pistol, Sigma said. He then created two hazardous environment suits and then withdrew three mass tanks, a strange matter class 14 nanoforge using historical archive Third Republic designs, three class 12 graviton power generators that were actually pre-diaspora designs, and two class 11 zero-point difference reactors that was Second Republic design. Sigma pointed at the laboratory. There are no reactors or power generators. 
Flower Patch had tossed up the specs for the equipment and rock back suddenly. All of this came from the historical archives. It's all pre-glassing technology. Surely you're mistaken, Texas said. No. Look at the dates of the templates he used. All of them are pre-glassing, using only pre-glassing methods and materials. They chose for inefficiency rather than higher efficiency and energy to matter conversion rates, Flower Patch said. Why would they do that? Totra asked. He turned to the slight woman. Do you know? Blaupatch was looking right at her when she shook her head and saw, again, something that apparently only she could see. The Bioterran had a digital presence. It was slightly off, maybe a nanosecond, but she still saw the oddly colored and oddly shaped digital presence of a small woman. It was all grey, silvery, and moved more like water or a thick gas than a pure digital representation. Flower Patch filed it away as just another curiosity. What could they have wanted that equipment for? Nexus asked. He pointed at where some kind of hexagonal chamber had been built in the corner of the room. And what is this? He used one of the larger creation engines to build it, but the template for that is nowhere to be found. The creation engine in his lab is under some kind of lockout, Delta said. He turned to the bioform. Can you unlock it so that we can see what he built? Again, she shook her head. No, the interlocks are all the code, core code. Any attempt to even move the creation engine will cause it to fuse out. Flower Patch looked close at the lab. Is the creation engine why none of us can enter? She nodded slowly. Yes. How old was the template he used to create that object? Flower Patch asked. The female Terran held still for a long moment. Before your peoples were born... Samuel managed to hack out the schematics and created a template from the schematics using Legion's access codes. Everyone went still. It predated creation engines, Dalton choked out. Yes, the woman said. And Samuel has Legion's access codes, Torturer said. She nodded. Why didn't you do anything? Legion gave instructions that we were to ignore all hacking and data theft by Samuel with the highest priority, she said. She shrugged. He found something. Something no one else did. Legion's codes were hacked after the case Omaha went out. Another of the petite women came in and looked at Flower Patch. You are required, she said. Her voice brooked no argument, and Flower Patch could hear the order repeated in digital space. Flower Patch stood up, dusted off her hands, complying. She followed the petite woman out even as Torturer argued that Samuel had somehow escaped the black box with a rod and left everyone else to rot. They wound through the hallways until they stopped at a heavy door. The slight woman put her hand next to the door and her palm was scanned and her digital identification was read. The slate pinged and went dark as the door unlocked. You are the only one with a physical form. We lack the empathy to carry out what must be intended to, the woman said. You're part of the immortal, aren't you? Flower Patch asked. She nodded. Yes. The case Omaha took part of your mind with it, didn't it? Flower Patch asked. She shook her head. No. My sisters and I's souls, our father fights to preserve Holy Terrasol. We carry out his will in the universe beyond so that the enemies of mankind will not triumph. The door finally finished unlocking and slowly opened. Flower Patch noted that it was two meters thick wall steel and opened into a hallway. 
Are you all the same? Flower Patch asked as she followed the small woman, whom most people thought of as a Confederate intelligence agent, down the hallway. We're all complete, the woman said. We live, we die, we live again. We do not forget yesterday, but we stand today looking towards tomorrow. Flower Patch managed not to shiver as the petite woman opened another door. It took long moments before the door raised. Do you know where Samuel and Herod went? Flower Patch asked. Can I confirm or deny any knowledge regarding any such potential individuals, nor their possible activity? The woman said. She made a gesture. After you. Flower Patch walked in and stopped. There was cryotubes in the room, surgical ones, where nanites and robotic surgeons could work on someone in cold storage. The room was warm, the cryotubes covered with moisture. The petite woman walked up to the one that was dry, putting her hand on the top. Flower Patch walked up next to her, watching it confirm the woman's identity. For the first time, concentrating, she saw it as it flowed by. Sandra Blake, 33928A43. He'll need you, the woman said. He has recovered from his illness. Legion, my father's brother, has delivered him from the grasp of Hades. The tube cracked open and Flower Patch stared in shock as the body inside. It shuddered and opened its eyes, staring at Flower Patch. Mommy, I had a dream I'd been sick, the young dog boy said, reaching for her. Flower Patch took his hand. It's okay now, sweetie. Mama's here. End of chapter. Chapter 309. Tinvuru Gripping Hands. It's been nearly three months. I wish we could get some word on how it's going. Nothing follows. Hackletack, free flight. I doubt it'll be going well for the landing to land. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. I'll be honest, I don't think it'll matter. Nothing follows. Hackletack, free flight. What do you mean? Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. The fleet and armies are already fighting in council space and have had a chance to turn around and head for Terrasol. Instead, they're still continuing their attacks. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. Maybe, uh, they don't know? Nothing follows. Talgon, Forge Worlds. They know. Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. They just don't care. Nothing follows. Talgon, Forge Worlds. You two lost your home worlds. We barely kept ours. Do you really think that losing their home system will matter? The Confederacy is huge. There's billions of Terrans, tens of billions of them all together, not to mention their allies. Do you really think... All right, Powell's table. You're right. Board 8376565-23283-387 is completely shot. I'll have Wally fab up a new one... Replace that one, and we'll move on to rebooting the emergency communications buffer system. That the Terrans will. Wait, what was that? Did anyone else hear that? Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. Yeah, I heard it too. That was weird. It sounded like someone talking in the next room. Nothing. Voltage is steady, and bridge is kicking a bit along the conduit 376565-23211A47. I'm going to replace it. Good plan. Oh, God. There's an Amarian squirming hatch here. 
I have to find one of their parents. God, they're so frightened and confused. Huh. Don't let them bite you this time. I won't. Come here, little ones. Let's find mommy. Follows. Dunvaru gripping hands. What is that? It's not broadcasting any identification, and this is a secure chat room. Nothing follows. Hackletack, free fright. They must somehow be inside the Gestalt system if... How's that? Better. Did you find their parents? Yeah. They were at one of the riverbank parks I created. <laughs> There's so many. I... I, I, I can't. I, I can't. You can. Because you must. It's just... Uh, <laughs> it's just us. Uh, we're alone in this breach. <laughs> we can hear them this plain. Nothing follows. Tolkien Forge Worlds. By the digital Omni Messiah. They sound like they're in so much pain. Nothing follows. Tinvaro gripping hands. But where are they? Nothing follows. Tolkien Forge Worlds. I don't. Uh, I'm okay now. Okay. I'm going to power up the buffer system. We'll see what happens. Ready? Activating. No, what we can do to help. System backbone message. 6.43E plus 12 records to process. Please stand by. Archangel system self-test. Them. They sound like they need help. Nothing follows. Ackletack free flight. Archangel. Nothing follows. Archangel self-test complete. Buffer out of range. Please contact Supervisor. Supervisor override accepted. Buffer.transfer.bin compile. Struct group underscore info. Init underscore groups equals open brackets dot usage equals atomic underscore init. Open brackets to close brackets close curly brackets. Semicolon. Struct group underscore info multiply groups underscore alloc. Open bracket, int, get, sit, size, close brackets. Open curly brackets, strut, group, underscore, info, multiplied by group, underscore, info, semicolon. Int, n blocks, semicolon, int, i, semicolon. n blocks equals open bracket, get, set, size, plus n groups, underscore, per, underscore, block, minus one. Close brackets, divided by n groups, underscore, per, underscore, block, semicolon. Comment. Make sure we always allocate at least one indirect block pointer. End comment. End blocks equals end blocks question mark. Colon one semicolon. Group underscore info equals km alloc open brackets size of open brackets multiply group underscore info close brackets plus end blocks multiplied by size of open brackets gid underscore t multiplied close brackets comma. GFP underscore user close brackets semicolon. If open brackets exclamation mark group underscore info close brackets return null semicolon. Group underscore info dash bigger than n groups equals good set size semicolon. Group underscore info dash bigger than n blocks equals n blocks semicolon. Atomic underscore set open brackets ampersand group underscore info dash bigger than usage comma one close brackets semicolon if open brackets get set size smaller than or equal to n groups underscore small close brackets group underscore info dash bigger than blocks open square bracket zero close square bracket 
equals group underscore info dash bigger than small underscore block semicolon. Else open curly brackets for open brackets i equals zero semicolon i smaller than n block semicolon i plus plus close brackets open curly brackets gid underscore t multiplied by b semicolon b equals open brackets void multiplied close brackets underscore underscore get underscore free underscore page open brackets gfp underscore user close brackets semicolon if open brackets exclamation mark b close brackets go to out underscore undo underscore particle underscore alloc semicolon group underscore info dash bigger than blocks open square bracket i close square bracket equals b semicolon close curly brackets close curly brackets return group underscore info semicolon out underscore undo underscore partial underscore alloc colon while open brackets minus minus i bigger than or equal to zero close brackets open curly brackets free underscore page open brackets open brackets unassigned longer close brackets group underscore info dash bigger than blocks open square bracket i close square bracket close bracket semicolon close squirty bracket k free open bracket group underscore info close bracket semicolon Return null semicolon close curly bracket export underscore symbol open brackets group underscore alloc close brackets semicolon void groups underscore free open bracket struct group underscore info times group underscore info close brackets open curly bracket if open bracket group underscore info dash bigger than blocks open square bracket zero close square brackets exclamation mark equals group underscore info dash bigger than small underscore block close bracket open curly bracket int i semicolon for open bracket i equals zero semicolon i initiate emergency buffer transfer executing talcum gestalt screams talcum gestalt has logged off lost connection to client ackletack reflight what was that nothing follows tinvaro gripping hands Emergency buffer transfer complete. I think I had a stroke. 6.43E plus 12 records processed. I taste strawberries. Talcon Forge Worlds has logged on. Not. Coolant is moving fine. I think this one's stable. Looks like it. Oof. More Trianidad hatchlings. Here. Go here next. Priority system file transfer. Primary Solnet phasic buffer system. Hing follows. Talcon Gestalt has accepted file. System non-refusable. File transfer complete. Ackletack Gestalt has accepted file. System non-refusable. File transfer complete. Tinvaru has accepted file. System non-refusable. File transfer complete. Talcon Gestalt has disconnected. Lost connection to client. Ackletack Gestalt has disconnected. Lost connection to client. Tinvaru gripping hands. <gasps> Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds has joined the chat. Ackletack Free Flight has joined the chat. Talcon Forge Worlds. Oof! What is that? I'm gonna open it. Nothing follows. Tenvaro gripping hands. I wouldn't. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Too late. By the vat grown Luke's beard. Nothing follows. Ackletack Free Flight. What is it? Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. It's, uh, it's, um, 
gets to filter out something called phasic echoes and phasic energy from data streams. It's the size of a polo tank. Nothing follows. Denver gripping hands. What's it for? Archangel system notification. All Archangel hashes are offline. Salted hash crash offline. Please inform emergency crews. And why did we get it? Nothing follows. Dalkin, Forge Worlds. I have no idea. Nothing follows. Arod leaned back and looked at his handiwork and trying not to laugh. If he started laughing, he'd start screaming and his throat was already raw from that. There were fuses on either side of the component Harod had replaced. The component had to be precisely manufactured, taking nearly an hour to print out through the strange matter creation engine, and was probably exceedingly expensive to create. The fuses, finger-thick coils of iridium wire, were intact. Praise be the digital omnibusire that those fuses survived, Harod thought to himself. He laughed but managed not to go any further. Wally leaned against him, playing a comfortable little ditty. Harrod put his arm around Wally and hugged him slightly. Fire it up, Harrod said. All right, Samuel answered. How long do you suppose they've been running with this blown out? From the evidence, this blew out during the mantid attack, Harrod said. He stood up and stretched, feeling the artificial fibers gun cramp. He didn't ask why his robot physical interaction frame now had artificial muscle fibers. All right, I've got it working. Ready to move on to the next part, Sam asked. Harod nodded, closing his tool tray and patting Wally. Ready! Harod followed Samuel's directions, a blue line in his vision, to the maglev trap station. At least there weren't any shades around. Harod leaned back and closed his eyes. Where are we going next? Gestalt channel switching emergency bus line, Samuel said. Huh, might need that, Harrod said. He closed his eyes. I'm going to defrag and recompile. Mind running me a dream? Can't do that. Wanna hang out in one of the parks, Zap said. Hit me, Harrod said. The world dissolved. Talcan Fortrals, I have no idea where this blueprint is from, to be honest. Nothing follows. Ackletack free flight. Maybe there's something going, emergency gestalt channels online. On in terror that scanning channels has to, what? Scan complete, activating channels. Terrasol has joined the chat. Bring task force Starlight to 33.383 and have them go to rapid fire at all guns. These guys aren't going to surrender. Mantid Free Worlds has joined the chat. Only half a billion Lanaklan prisoners. Rigelian Syrian Compact has joined the chat. Try Dr. Kowakrawak's foot webbing cream, warm and tingly for all your webbing needs. Trianidad Highvolts has joined the chat. The War Queen has announced that she will be turning over control of Smoky Cone to the Council of Queens. In other news, Lanaklan prisoners need your help. Penpals, the chat buddies, and more. Donate grazing land today. Assist in the victimized Lanaklan in re-entering society and culture with a small donation of 50 acres of grassland today and receive rewards. Contact your nearest war matron. Donkey, 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 donkey. Beauty follows. Chat released to all members. 
Warning, lag between emergency members and normal members equals 60 times. Terrasol, I think we need a roll call. End of chapter. Chapter 310, Evil Never Dies. Tarkin Forgeworlds. Are all of you alright? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highballs. We're alright. They obvious were working off some bad intelligence and tactics. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. They didn't stand a chance. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. They did some damage, but it was mostly because of the sheer amount that they threw at us. Putting Omnicron back to sleep is proving more difficult. Nothing follows. Terrasol. We got some fighting still going on, mostly against the brain-damaged ones who don't know when to quit, but are smart enough to go gorilla. Found some poor bastards in the M-Shade Preserve. Manted Free Worlds. Oh, those poor Lanaklan. Did they live? Nothing follows. Terrasol. A handful. They're in bad shape, but we managed to rescue them. The EPOW camps are full, though. Funnily enough, the ones who don't wander around in circles shouting slogans aren't too keen on going home. A lot of them have suffered severe brain injuries. Ackletack, free flight. It's been three months out here. Almost four. How long? All right, test that section. Green lights, looks good. All of you doing? What is that? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Connective. I've checked the lines that's coming across the maintenance channels, but those have been damaged badly for centuries. I'm starting to think, are you alright? Yeah, I think so. The puffies and their mother was rough. I know. We can do this because we must do this. It's just difficult sometimes. So many of them, all so afraid. <laughs> I love you. I love you too, just hold on. We can do this. Ray, I will always love you, Dotmud. We love you too, Wally. That they might be, wait, uh, did he say puffies? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. He did, he said puffies. Puffies! Nothing follows. Tulkin Forge World. What's a puffy? Nothing follows. Tin fur gripping hands. They've mentioned them before. What are they? Nothing follows. Terrasol. Pubvians, an extinct species. Manted Free Worlds, a Xeno species my people xenocided during the Terra Manted War. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Consortium. If they're in system, how are they finding the Pubvians? Oh man, oh man. <sighs> what? Is the system destroyed? It'll be hard to fab equipment for that area. It's clean. No. Clean means no microbes. There's a pair of corpses stuck in the wiring and they're still gooey. Ooh. Wait, but the Pompeians ever subbed up? Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Not as far as I know. Nothing follows. Pterosaur. Records are spotty at best. Talcon Forge Worlds. They've encountered them before. What's going on? Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. You don't think? No. No way. Everyone's been trying to figure it out for 8,000 years. You don't, um... Okay, the system wasn't actually damaged. Looks like the wiring got pulled loose. Well, that's some good news. Yeah, it's straight green down the board. Well, I've got bad news. What? 
Think they actually got the hardware for the SoulNet? SoulNet system, do you? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Connective. I don't see how. We've had people working on it for 8,000 years. Nobody's even gotten... Well, the next layer is Gamma and then Layer Beta. So, close to even figuring out how the whole system works. We know our side kind of what happens, but anything to do with the hardware we... You can't get there from here. Haven't been able to figure out what to do. That's why there hasn't been any hardware updates. So, how are we going to... uh, Nothing follows. Derisol. That uh, might not be uh, entirely true. Cybernetic Organism Collective. What did you do? Yeah. Oh, man. There's something in the buffer. Looks like an old signal. It's pretty scrambled, so I'll shunt it over to the error checking and repair, and then send you through it. It's like going through hell. No. It's going between hell space and dead space and scraping the edges of both with your brain. Thanks for that, Sam. What did you do to the system? Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Anyone else completely lost? Nothing follows. Hackletack Free Flight. No, I'm totally lost. I can't figure it out. How long till I get there? Ten hours. I'm gonna recompile, defrag, and relax. Any preference? That park by the lake. The Trianidad are doing ballroom dancing. I wanna watch. All right. Sleep well. What's going on? I think follows. Manted free worlds. Wait. Wherever they are, we can hear them talking. There's Puppians, Trinidad, Numerian, and Terence. Are they... Are they, uh... Are they in the Sud system? Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. I thought only Terrans could be hooked into Suds. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highwolds. Ballroom dancing. That's one of those fads that, uh... Wait. It was huge 8,000 years ago amongst the Cattle Queens and everyone else. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. Okay, where are they? Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. Considering they're fixing the emergency channels, they have to be where the hardware is. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. Backup. Terrasol, what did you do to the system? Nothing follows. Terrasol. We found Legion. Turns out uh, he wasn't dead. Manted Free Worlds, you mentioned that. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Well, he turns out he got into the Sud system once before. Tinveru gripping hands. Daxon's wife. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Consortium. And the dogs and cats. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Well, who better to get us into the Suds than Legion? We black boxed him. Manted Free Worlds. Are you high? You put the master of the fleet of one in the black box project. Nothing follows. Derisol. What else is going to get into it? You? Cybernetic Organism Collective. Touche. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Okay, there's some secrets going on here and I want them out in the open. Nothing follows. Tinvuru gripping hands. Do you need us to leave? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. No. No. You get used to a pterosaur. He's so twisty that he has a screw his socks on. Come on, spill. Nothing follows. Parasol. All right. 
There's evidence that the researchers working on the Solnet and that the Solnet neural recording application device had made a major breakthrough. Dranidad Hive Worlds. Oh boy, nothing follows. Pterosaur. We'd figured out how to add everyone to the system, even the Trianidad, which meant that we just needed to add the Mantid. We added phasic energy systems to allow the Mantid to join the Suds. Mantid Free Worlds. Oh my god, oh my god, that, that's why the Suds blew out. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. If you did that, then when the Mantid attacked, they'd have a direct line straight into the system with their psychic attack. Oh, nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds, that explains why some of my people went crazy. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds, so they wired the system up to accept Mantid psychics. The Mantid attacked, used psychic weaponry, and it blew out the whole system. Nothing follows. Terrasol, not quite. Someone managed to get the system partially working. Mantid Free Worlds. Legion. It was Legion, wasn't it? Nothing follows. Ackletack Free Flight. No, I bet it was. You awake? Yeah. Ready? No. Close the door and you'll matrons to Lair Gamma. All right. Ready, Wally? Triumphant peeping dot mid. The Digital Omni Messiah. Nothing follows. Pterosaur. Yeah. There was the digital omni-messiah, the fourth miracle. Talcon Forge Worlds. Well, all of this is fascinating, but how long until you're able to rejoin the rest of the universe? Nothing follows. Pterosaur. Not sure. We'll probably be the last. Rygelian Syrian Compact. Oh, wow. I didn't realize anyone was actually speaking. I've been running PSAs and commercials on this channel. Whoops. Nothing follows. The alarm sounded, a howling that accompanied red lights. The computers all spun up, the drives whining, using crystal platters rather than solid-state drives that had been old tech even back then. Amber monitors raked to life in information streamed by. The hexagonal chamber lit up, the walls blue with gold starbursts. The machinery hummed for a second time in thousands of years. The hum died away and the emergency lights went out, the siren going silent. Matrons complete was on several of the monitors. It was silent for a long time, then the door opened. No woman stood there, naked, a bag of cigarettes in one hand and a single cigarette in her mouth, a lighter in her other hand. She lit the cigarette, inhaled, and then slowly exhaled smoke before she spoke. Follow me, you bovine freaking bastard. I should respawn you with two cocks so that I can gouge you freaking twice. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.